This is Tom Canamonte of Third Rail Design Lab. And this is Blake Simmons. Begin again, Blake, I thought. Okay, sorry. Let's go. Take two. <laughs> it's time to. Take two. Take two. <laughs> there are no take twos. <laughs> it, it's, time to begin, it's time to begin again. <laughs> it's time to begin again. <laughs> We're not beginning again. Release! Kraken! Begin again, Blake. How you doing? Begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. I'm very well. Thank you for asking, Tom TRDL. Uh, how are <laughs> how is uh, how's the world treating you today? I'm coming to you from the future. I'm coming to you from my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so once again. So once again, Mr. Mr. Wall, begin again, Blake Simmons. Man, I love that call sign. We're gonna use that. I'm going to use that forever. I have to put that in my phone. <laughs> uh, so I'm overseas. Blake is not. It's mo- it's morning for me, and it's not for you. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but we'll, we'll but we'll, we'll both reach um, blood alcohol poisoning at the same rate. So yeah. it okay. It's all of, it's all about kinetics and pharmacology, my friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, you've been well. It's been a crazy 2018, but overall things are on a positive vector. Yes. Fantastic. Yep. And how about you? Uh, I've been um, I've been skirting death, but smiling, so it's fine. Well, if, if you're going to dance with death, <laughs> you might as well wear a skirt. <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, yeah. I was I was I was I was sick before I left uh, for this trip, and I couldn't quite. It was, you know, I went to the doctor just to make sure it wasn't um, something that I was going to need uh, antibiotics for, and they had thought that it wasn't. But it was just such irregular behavior for my body, and it just went, you know, just really weird throat thing. And then it went into my lungs, and mostly it's been, I think, a either an allergic reaction or I'm just allergic to myself because I think it's mostly my asthma fighting with my body because my lungs are filled with fluid, but there's no reason for it. I don't have any... Like I'm, I'm 100% fine. I'm in the gym. I'm doing it. You know, I'm living my life. It's just, I can drown. <laughs> so it's not, yeah. not great. It is the road to walking pneumonia. So I'm watching it pretty closely, but um, that's yeah, pretty I think, much what the alcohol is for. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, but you, you still may want to go get a, uh, a checkup while you're over there from some doctor that they have at the hotel. But those symptoms are kind of spooky, my friend, and uh, not paying attention to them from a medical perspective, uh, no bueno. So I'm very much paying attention to the okay. No, no, but you're not an MD. I'm not. But you think I'm going to let someone here? You know, do you realize that what they would probably do is just, they would do an amputation. No, they would do leeches. <laughs> leeches. <laughs> I was watching something. What was it? <laughs> I was watching Victoria on PBS, Masterpiece Theater, and, and, uh, and Rufus, Rufus Sewell's character is just sitting there in the bathtub, or, or no, he's sitting on a chair and there's a bunch of leeches on his arm. And, uh, it, and it reminded me about the fairly recent changes in, in uh, medical practice. It's not that long ago. <laughs> Pre, pre-penicillin, not that long ago that we were doing, you know, <clears throat> and, and, uh, and everything, was, everything was vapors and, you know. Yes, and ethers. And, ethers, uh, yeah. that's right. And uh, 
Yeah, but every time I think of leeches, I just think of politics. It's, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. Is this not a good time to introduce our uh, our uh, sucking the monkey segment for this session of recording? I think it is. I think it is. What are you, what are you sucking on there, buddy? I am uh, partaking of a delightful bullet beverage straight up no ice in my uh, Iron Man Civil War glass. <laughs> <laughs> A fine 16-ounce beverage. <laughs> yeah, you know, if we got to go, go big. <laughs> I'll send you some leeches too, man. That's not great. Uh, that's interesting. So um, we're fairly aligned. This particular occasion, I'm not drinking a, 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 to- a toxic stew of locally sourced material that almost killed me that one time. Uh, yes. The heinous anus, as you called it. The, the heinous anus. But, uh, and I called it the neander meander, which was better. And the title of the entire... Uh, podcast and award-winning i don't know what awards oh, oh. are in terms of podcasts but i know there are some and that title is it so yes but this time i'm not doing that i'm having also delicious bullet uh with some ginger ale and some lemon there's no yeah. it's just a it's a bullet and ginger ale it's kind of a kind of a a, a mule i guess but I don't yep know. ginger and jameson's if i if i'm going to go ginger uh as a mixer, Jameson's is the good cut for me. I really like that balance. Ah, yes. I've been alternating a little bit with, uh, like, I've mostly been having ginger ale with this or straight, and then sometimes um, some Coke, but I don't, I, I don't know. Something about the Jack and Coke has always been skirting the edge of cough medicine for me, so I have to, have to be in the right mindset for it. Anyway. Yeah, it, it, it's a fallback position when you've lost the war. <laughs> well, things are going well here, too. <laughs> So uh, anyway, so so as usual, we're we're pi- compiling sessions of recording into into mega podcasts. I think the last one that I released, which was our January third podcast, the Neander Meander, that was about a five and a half hour show. And I <laughs> going into this. That's not the worst, man. It could be longer. I know, I know but it's just, it's stunning that, uh-huh. that we that we actually have enough energy in our bodies to emit that kind of noxious fumes and hot air for that long of a period of time. It's amazing. Brilliant anecdotes and observations about entertainment culture and the issues that are interesting to us. Not right. noxious. Probably award-winning material. Award-winning, yes. Contributing the most to entropy on any given night. That's right. <laughs> so before we get into what we're going to do, the thing and the other thing, what are you looking forward to in the very near future? Not necessarily in your planned plundering list, but is there any particular project on the horizon that's got your attention? Just wondering. Uh, well, I'd have to say Black Panther dominates all my cycles right now um, <laughs> and, and looking forward to the future. And then, of course, you have this little thing that people may have heard of that's coming out um, in a you know, very near future as well. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an exodus journey of delight uh, through May and June. I'm really looking forward to Black Panther, Infinity War, and of course the uh, follow-up Ant-Man and Wasp. So it's going so to be great. I do want to talk about Ant-Man and Wasp, but before that, I was going to say the thing that I find so interesting about Black Panther and Infinity War as we lead up to them is the, you know, <clears throat> we're we're living. I mean, never before have we been living in a 24-hour news cycle where the propaganda is so fast and furious that it's distorting reality like the it's distorting the algorithms which in turn push what it thinks news is to us right it's never been this bad but i find it amazing that 
there's so much positive buzz coming out about Black Panther, given the state of things in this country and just the way the negative bias towards the algorithms and what they choose to push. There have been occasional negative stories about the lead up to that film's release, but they're completely being drowned out by all of this stuff about how how furious everybody, how great they looked at the opening night and, and, you know, all of the positives about the critical reviews of the early critical reviews of the movie and how this is such a big deal as a, as a first truly, really truly black, all blacks uh, superhero film. And not just in the way people look, but also in the, you know, the, the thematic material behind it and, and sort of the important things that it's saying in a world that's been dominated by it. Another point of view entirely. The, the algorithms haven't even skewed that, which astounds me, right? Well, well yeah, I, I agree. I think it's an amazing moment that we're in and it's long overdue. And uh, it, it's great to see that it's coming out with such uh, positivity around it. It's also great to see that the pre-sale tickets have broken every record, um, that, which is also good. But I was just reading today um, a little piece where there, there's, this, there's this group that assembled on uh, Facebook and they had like 3,700 users that were trying to dump negative reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. To try that and, was very interesting, yeah. It's been, yeah, to, the yeah, narrative so, has been, that one guy has been tanking, that one guy's mission has been to tank the 0% and 100% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and he's just been a shit. But now this, this thing, it's gotten Rotten Tomatoes to do a formal response. DC has gotten involved and, has, yeah. you know, <clears throat> distance themselves from it. It is pretty, it's pretty disgusting because it's not even, it doesn't even appear to be racially motivated. It's just this weird artificial uh, war between Marvel fans and DC fans. It doesn't make any sense at all. We should just want well, to... Yeah, and especially when they take it into this space and make it so negative. And it's just, and it really is a blight on the image of fanboys because that's the moniker really? that they're taking up on this. And it's just, you know, it, it would be great to see the legion of uh, fanboys that are out there that outnumber these assholes a thousand to one and just send them into purgatory, electronic yeah. and real, and just like to saturation bomb their universes and just 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 eradicate it because there really is no place for that kind of behavior. And I and I and I do agree that there, it doesn't appear to be uh, racially motivated, but the fact that it's this movie that they're aligning to and organizing around creates a little bit of a nefarious specter to their activities that just can't be tolerated at all. Well, I think it just gives me a, um, it gives me that strange, that deja vu, that really uncomfortable, surreal feeling when you have this sort of thing happening, this partisan misinformation campaigns and um, extreme negative bias towards things uh, in our entertainment, <laughs> in our entertainment and not even like thematic material of the entertainment, right? But yeah. just in the, but who made what movie, right? And yeah. we can't escape that in our in in everything else in the news that we're dealing with, in our politics and in you know uh, you know world world events and environmental issues and everything else and civil rights issues and and the the women's rights issues. It's it, we're just absolutely at saturation point in the in the info war. Yeah, and now it's in, and, and it's bleeding into the meaningless information stuff. Like the entertainment. Yep. I mean, this this stuff means nothing. It's entertainment, and it's and it's business, but it's entertainment. And for people to be dragging it to that extreme and treating it that seriously, it just drives me nuts, man. Yeah, it's well, depressing. it's just it's a, yeah, it is depressing, but it's a sign of the times. 
uh, little knock nod to print. Um, the, uh, but it, the, the hyper-partisanship and the polarization, it's just, it's, it's just expanding into every facet of life. I mean, even sports, the NFL, NBA, all that. Although you could say that sports has always been politicized. But Well, and fan, and fan stuff has been too. I think the problem is yeah. these have all been, um, <clears throat> these have all been uh, hobbies and affectations. And, and uh, you know, they've been to one side, but, but the – but the fact that everything in our news is that polarized, polarized. Some would say it's always been, and we're just being more aware of it. But I think it's just we're reached a point where there's not, like, there's nothing that, that you can escape to. Every right. which way, if you're talking to anybody else or you're reading anything, they're taking it to an extreme. And the thing that I would also say is that this is not even my response to this is not a Marvel versus DC issue. It's 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 a hyper fanboy issue because. In the lead up to Justice League, as we talked about several times on our, on the podcast, oh yeah, we were trying, we were we were hoping it was going to be good, but we were watching how in the in the days leading up to and during the release, all the negative press about the project was was bad enough, but then people started planting those false stories using Twitter and everything about how supposedly DC was collapsing their film universe after this, and they were washing their hands of the whole thing, and everybody, you know, all that stuff was misinformation. That film did not need the help in tanking. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And in fact, it really, I mean, it didn't tank in the sense that it made no money, but you know what I mean? That was like, why, why in the world were super, were anti-DC fanboys doing extra to try to cause problems for that production? Well, it, it, to take a look at what happened with the with Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Right? With people trying to torpedo that and say they, they ruined the canon and take it out of the canon because it doesn't belong. And it's just... They magnetically yeah. bombed it is what they did. Yeah, it's just, it's just everybody thinks they have a bully pulpit and everything gets dumped on the continuum of connectivity through media. And it's just, it's just this horrible echo chamber with just a bullshit evanescent wave. It's just crap. This is why at the end of every night, you, you just retreat to the bathroom in your house and watch Samba Vader videos over and over again until you feel better, right? No, no, I watch Lord of the Rings. <laughs> So, so black, so so black Panther. I'm super excited about it. Um, everything that we've seen leading up to it shows that we're going to like it. I love how much of what we're seeing suggests that it's not just, you know, an empowering and exciting and good, you know, movie um, thematically and as a and, and a good a good adventure movie to watch and a good superhero movie to watch. But what I like about it is that it's it's a fictional narrative that's describing a um, a culture that is different than the European infected view of Africa, right? Yeah, he talked about how he made a thing about how it was very specific, his accent choices and their accent choices in the film, that he would be educated but not have the affected Western English accent because this is not a world where, uh, where, where that sort of, you know, more, more subtle bias was being, is present that in order to be intelligent and powerful and, and wealthy, and a leader, you have to have been uh, educated in Europe and come back to it, right? Which is, of course, a real world analog. This is really fun. They're creating a world where this is the most this is the most powerful and evolved culture on the planet in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and by their own time. Yep. And I think that's going to be just the world building concept here. Just the world building of, of all of the costumes and the 
the relationships and the governance and everything that they're they're putting together for Wakanda is so exciting to me as a person who likes the yeah. world build, right? So there's a thing. Okay, also Ant-Man and Wasp, dude. Mm-hmm. So I assume you saw the video that, or the trailer that came out a couple of days ago. Uh, of course. What was your takeaway? I think it looks really good. I think they've really upped the game on um, how to capture the style. There was one, um, there are a couple of examples of how the laws of physics just don't apply anymore. No, no. I'll let that go. Yeah. When, when they shrink the skyscraper and he puts it on a cart and wheels it, you know. Come on. <laughs> no, it even had the cart. It even had the cart built into it. It had the cart built into it. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Uh, <laughs> well, nothing about that, that aspect of pin particles has ever made any sense. The, nothing about that has made any sense. We just let it go. Yeah, it just, it just kind of, whew, okay, there it is. Um, I really, I, the costume seems better. The cinematography seems to adjust to the difference in scales a lot better. So there's going to be more continuity in the effects. I think that'll be really nice. And I like that they're making the giant and small kind of equally accessible. Yeah. I'll tell you what I really like about it is um, I'm really enjoying, I'm really enjoying the fact that we're seeing a, superhero couple mm-hmm. without the usual apparently without the usual gender politics she seems very uh very powerful very confident as someone you know who's i don't know what it sounds like this the timeline on this movie is not far off from the end the events of the first one but she's capable she's confident um she tells it like it is and there's no there's none of the the baggage that comes with those kinds of stories generally that you know is it a girlfriend? Is it a love interest? Is it someone who was a thing like that and now has become another thing and, oh, he's got to adapt to it? She's just owning the scenes that she's in. And well, there's, no the, apology to, there's no apologies for it. And I think it's really kind of exciting. I like when they attempt to do relationships in superhero movies in a, in a, a more enlightened way. They don't have to be as four-color comics as they have been in the past for a lot of, in a lot of projects, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, she's not a damsel in distress that needs to be rescued. Yeah, sure. and also they're not point, and they're also not shining a spotlight on the fact that she's not either. Yeah, she is what and she then, is. Uh, yeah, but I mean, so I, I guess I'm a. So you think like the, the relationship between Vision and Scarlet Witch and Black Widow and Banner are that they fall into a trap that you think this one avoids? No, I don't think that either of those fall into traps particularly. But I'm saying that the narrative of this was taking a sort of a love interest and then handing them a costume. Yeah. And, and all the ways that that can be a trope. And it looks like they've, 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 they've sidestepped all that and they moved right into her just being, handing his ass to him. I love yeah. the line where she's got a, whatever she's got she's got wings and blasters and he's like oh you guess you didn't have those available when you made my suit and he goes no i did <laughs> like, like, you know, like, just i don't know anyway so i don't we don't know we don't know how it's going to be but i have a lot of confidence in that project i really like the first ant-man film so and uh, also i i like that they're using the ghost as the not mm-hmm. as the main apparently main villain in the film um Ghost has a long history in the Iron Man comics, and 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 uh, you know, and it was, and and I liked him fine in that sense. But then he was reimagined in the pages of Thunderbolts about ten years ago or so, 
time's a blur when you get to our age, right? But at some point, <laughs> 10 years ago, yeah. some, they reimagined the ghost in a, in a much creepier way with a really weird, creepy helmet and some other stuff. I've posted photos to Robot Kraken, um, a great entertainment website for anybody who's listening. And um, anyway, so I think the look of the ghost in the modern comics was one of those where you could just, just film that, right? You don't even need to change a thing. But I think that the interpretation that they've they've taken in what we've seen in the trailer looks good. It looks good. It's different than what the comics showed, but it's it's definitely a nod to the the modern look of the ghost in a way that doesn't bother me. So I'm excited about mm -hmm. that. And apparently, it's a female female ghost. Yeah, it's a girl ghost. Yep, so that's a thing. Anyway, I'm excited about that too. And they've they've said repeatedly that the Ant Man movies are a critical. Um, they're a critical component of the overall story of the Marvel universe and what's happening in infinity war. And I think it's all the, yep. yeah, it's, it's a multiverse and being able to access the, the different continuities there. So it's, it's really good. I also liked Evangeline quite a bit. And I also yeah. like that throughout the Ant-Man, she felt slighted and jaded by her dad yeah. that they gave this doofus, you know, the, the yeah. next line the lineage. And so it is just, it is good to see that, that kind of animosity competitiveness play out, right? So you think we're going to get Michelle Pfeiffer in a costume at some point in the, like the third act of this movie? They're going to find her in the multiverse? Um, maybe, but I think, uh, I hope not. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if they didn't just because, you know, not everyone needs to be in a costume, but, and you know, especially if she's Michael Douglas's wife. But anyway, yeah. It, it it might be a little uh, unnecessary, but unless they find something that she had when she went in the multiverse that they need to, you know, some kind yeah. of lost on her. Well, I think she's going to be part of the narrative because I have a feeling that that's a lot of what's motivating um, Pym. But uh -huh. I have trouble imagining that they're going to avoid the temptation to do some sort of a Catwoman nod, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I feel like there's going to be something there because it's just one of those fourth wall things. It's like with Michael Keaton, right? They just couldn't not do it. Who is she? What is she? I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love. <laughs> you poor guys. Always confusing your pistols with your pride. Hey, so, dude, uh, let's talk about new stuff. Stuff that we've watched. Yep. Stuff we liked or didn't like. Reviews. Uh, no super stuff this time, but, um, I watched two, two, two projects within the last, uh, couple of weeks that I know you had already seen that would be fun to talk about, I think. Um, the first of which being John Wick 2. When did you see that? When it first came out? No, I saw it when it, uh, got first released on to video. Ah, I saved, yeah. I saved it for the, for my, for my, uh, screen at the house, you know, like it was definitely a home viewing, but it, I didn't want to see it on a trip. I wanted it as as big and wonderful as I could make it. Um, and I think it was well worth the well worth the wait, even though I had it in hand for about a month before I actually watched it. Um, so setting the stage for this, how did you feel about John Wick One? Just now, a couple of years old or whatever. Oh no! Well, it's almost three years old now. Um, I thought it was a tremendous movie that kind of set the genre, the stereotypical genre of that type of movie, on its head. And um, I thought it was very well executed. The script was fantastic. The, the fight scenes were amazing. And uh, the character plot development was a little, you know, you could expect all the twists and what was going to happen. But um, 
overall, I thought it, I thought it was a stellar movie. It, it was exciting to watch and fun to watch and uh, very entertaining, which is after all the point. You know, the thing about John Wick that I took away from it the first time was that it was as close to an honest sort of modern version of the 80s action movie as we've had in the in the current era of filmmaking, right? Like, mm -hmm. there was no... It was a very simple setup. Here's a world. They built a world around it that made some effort to make sense of all the assassins and everything with the, you know, with the whole, um, what is it? The What's the club? What's that club? That they're Continental. In? The, the Continental. Continental, right. But, you know, but overall, though, it was basic, basic premise. Here's a guy. He's sad. Had a dog. And then it's all revenge. Done. And it was so simple and pure. I was, I love that about it. I loved how honest it was. It's just like, we're just going to get right to it. Yeah. That was what was so fun about it. And I think in a way it started to eat itself a bit in John Wick too, but we'll talk about that. But, but I mean, as far as a pure um, action combat movie, um, it had the sort of, I don't know, unapologetic brutality and cartoon violence that, that the modern version of that kind of film would have. But without being, um, but without having that sort of tongue-in-cheek nod to it the way Kingsman does, which is another sort of similar thing where it's like a modern take on a on a on a style of film that we don't have anymore, right? The Kingsmans are the well, modern version of of the old school Bond movies, not just in terms of the technology and the spy stuff, but also that type of story, right? Yeah, John Wick is. But, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say John Wick is the same sort of thing of an approach to, you know, recontextualizing those projects of the past, but, but, but without that tongue-in-cheek nod that Kingsman has, where they're very, very obviously playing around. Like, it's uh -huh. very stylized in that way. John Wick is stylized, but it pretends to be serious. It just doesn't, it doesn't make a pretense of trying to make, trying to rationalize what it's doing. Right. But I, but I also like it doesn't fall into the tropes of uh, a tormented assassin that has doubts about morality and relativism and all that. It just uh, just goes, and I think I think they do a nice job of compartmentalizing it with the sub world with its own rules and its own yeah. um, ethos and its own pathos, and then um, both ethos even, and pathos. Yeah, yeah, but and then. Because they're just killing each other, it's, and they're not trying to save the world; they're just trying to save themselves, which I think makes it a little more uh, monocentric, which is refreshing. Yeah, uh, not everything. Not everything is diffusing a nuclear warhead that's going to crack the planet in two. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, blue tunnels of a, of energy going up into the clouds. Act yes, three. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and so I, I I like that kind of genre the kind of dark side of life but it's still organized it's not all entropy it has its own set of rules and the consequences if you break those rules and i thought it was really kind of just extremely well done uh yeah, to know, me it's, it's like it's like it's like an incarnation or a manifestation of some of the some of the things that godfather touched upon that there is this dark world but it still has its own set of rules right and right. code of conduct you know i think um what I, one of the things I liked is how they would take tropes and just strip them down to their basic essence and then let them come up. Like the, the, um, you know, the badass guy, operative type, you know, super soldier guy who's, who's tried to get out and has been pulled back in. Right. So that's a trope that we've seen a million different times, 
but we're all, they always spend all this energy forcing us to believe that they so desperately wanted to retire. And then they, then someone goes and kills their whole family. And so now they're sucked back in with bloodthirsty revenge. What I liked about this in both of the wicks was it's almost like he's resigned to it. I'm going to do uh-huh. a thing. I'm going to try to retire and you put, and then you, you know, please don't, he like pleads with the guy. Just don't do this. Just don't do it. Uh-huh. He does it. And he's like, ah. and so then, and then, and then his, his response to it is methodical. And I really enjoy that. You don't get, like you were saying, you don't see him having all of these, uh, you know, these emotional, um, this emotional pathos of like, oh, should I do this? And am I a good person? No, he doesn't give a shit. He's just, <laughs> he goes back in the uh, house and does uh, it definitively. Um, I like that. I like that about that story. Um, I also think it's interesting. I noticed this more in the second one than in the first one. But what I think is interesting is that the framework of this world, um, and I, I, I deal with this a lot in writing the stuff for my creator-owned content, is you have to come up with some sort of set of rules to explain normally explain why people are doing whatever they're doing that's sort of irrational right mm-hmm. and they create that whole uh rule about the, the the league of assassins and how they're supposed the markers and how they're supposed to act with each other versus their targets and what the safe houses are like and all this other stuff and they build this framework and then you are you're welcomed into it in the course of the first movie but i was very much aware watching the second one that you know there's this, there's all this rhetoric about, you know, you break the rules, you play, pay the price. And, you know, these guys went too far and now they're getting their ass handed to them. But in reality, you know, he's pretty much the first one to, to break those rules. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I wrong? Cause he, he basically, he's the one who violates the rules of the club. He's the one who, 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 who bends the rules about what is allowed to happen um, as an assassin in that, in that world. And of course, they, in the end of the in the end of the film, that's a pr- that's a prominent component of how it's going to be propelled into John Wick Three is that now he has to pay the mm-hmm. he has to suffer the consequences for breaking every rule of their even if, even if he seemed even if the if the uh, you know it seemed rationalized that he did that he's got to pay the piper. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I just um, and we'll talk. I'll save this comment for when we get through the movie. The one thing that disturbs me is. Uh, how they're setting up John Wick three and how it could turn into something like, I don't know, Hitman or something else, or, uh, you know, some superhero assassin that just kills everybody who comes at him. You know, yeah. I just, right. Cause in John Wick one and two, he's still a human. He still gets hurt. He still has to recover that physically. Yeah. Um, but then he's going to take on this whole thing. I don't know. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's pushing the edge a little, even in that, Willing suspension of disbelief card. Well, and in John Wick's one and two, he was always the attacker. Even when his opponents thought they were, you watched him either. I mean, the best, the best, the most John Wick moments in either film have been him going after people, right? (laughs) Like he's pursuing them. He's plowing through their defenses. He's using the car. He's doing all the stuff. And then even when there are circumstances in like in John Wick two, where he's in the catacombs and they're coming for him. He's planning out his strategy about how to deal with them. And he's laying out all his tools and putting his weapons everywhere because he's taken ownership of it. It's mm-hmm. not a defensive position for him. He's, he's turning it into an offensive position. They just don't know it yet. Everything that's being set up for John Wick three suggests that it's going to be man on the run. And you're right. That's going to be a different type of story. Yeah. But 
Um, okay, so how do you want you want to talk about cast a little bit, or you want to talk about story, or what? Um, let's talk about cast first. Okay. So you like Keanu Reeves. I, I like Keanu Reeves, um, and and I really thought the casting in John Wick One was tremendous. I did think that in John Wick Two, they, <laughs> you know, that they they. They went. They fell into the trap of well, let's do it bigger and better. Well, if we do it bigger. It has to be better, right? Like yeah. first it was all New York, and now we'll, we'll make it international. So within that context, of they had to bring in other characters. Um, I did like the addition of just the female badass assassin that was even worse than the one they had in John Wick One, or better. I guess you could even say it. I, I'd probably say better. Um, I tend to think of Keanu Reeves's uh, image in this movie in the movies as being a bit of the uh, Dwayne Johnson or uh, I don't know, Bruce Willis to some degree or any of these guys who, Oh, um, uh, our friend, uh, Cal Drogo, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. all these guys who have reached this point where their person, their pop, their, their celebrity persona has merged with their character personas and they're just wearing their own clothes in their movies. You know, we joked yeah. like uh, that, uh, we joked that Harrison Ford wore his own T-shirt to play on our 2049. <laughs> you, know, you look at like, you know, you look at like um, Jason Momoa and, you know, like some of his projects, you know, certainly they, 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 they roped Aquaman all around his own persona. So he's just Jason Momoa. You hear him. I was watching him on some clip on, on Jimmy Fallon and he's going like, yeah, come on. You know, like he's doing the same no, stuff. That, that, that's his guy. That's him. That's him. Yeah. He's not doing anything different. That's his He has some side projects now. He's in smaller movies or whatever that he's doing where it's just him running around. The one that I saw, he's, he's even got like, he and his dad played by the bad guy in um, Avatar are like hiking and they go to their old family cabin and it's been taken over by drug smugglers or something. And they got to fight their way out. That's the, the weak premise of this movie. It's just an action movie, but they find because it's in a cabin in a woods, they find a way to give him tomahawks to throw, which is just like, <laughs> I mean, other than rock climbing, it's his main hobby that he posts on Instagram. His three things on Instagram, or his four things are taking photos with his female coworkers, drinking Guinness, he's a sponsor of, doing rock climbing, and, oh, and then also, you know, Lisa Bonet and all the... Lately, yeah, I was going to say Lisa Bonet first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and, then, and then tomahawk throwing, right? Well, okay. Yeah. So now in this movie, he's got tomahawks to throw around, and then in the second trailer for the that latest movie, he even lights one on fire. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're we're at a state where the cool factor for these actors has bled into their their image on the film, and I tend to think of John Wick as being well, Keanu Reeves finally just looks like Keanu Reeves, but in reality, that's not true. He, if you ever see no. him photographed, he's still wearing all like the disheveled army jacket and. He's got a motorcycle helmet on half the time, and he looks kind of, he looks kind of rough. But yeah. what it does do is give him more of a, you know, the long hair and the facial hair, and just kind of. It definitely feels like a distilled version of all the things we liked about Keanu Reeves when he went into act, action movie mode from his comedy mode, right? Like yeah, it yeah. feels like the version of Keanu Reeves on film that he was always meant to be. Well, it's a, it's the best version. You merge uh, the Matrix with Constantine, and yeah. out comes John Wick <laughs> with 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 good suits and and muscle cars and whatnot. But but what's funny yeah. about it is that it makes me think of of Keanu Reeves in that in his all black suit with his facial hair as being that's who that's Keanu Reeves, not his character John Wick, right? 
which is funny because it's really not. But all these other actors yeah. had that blend happen. And so it's kind of infected the way my brain thinks of that. that well, I would also say that Keanu is way more reserved in the public domain. And when he's not on a screen, uh, he's not like this ever-present social media thing like Dwayne Johnson, like Jason Momoa and others. He doesn't, he doesn't proselytize enough out there for us to really understand who he is outside of what we see him on the screen for. So I think that that can contribute as well because, you know, he's larger than life folks like uh, the rock and Momoa and and others that have they're there every day right yeah. so well to be fair also there's an aspect of this which is interesting in that um in the golden age of hollywood you know everything we've taken away from that it's the classic films that have survived right all yeah. of the original document all the original documentation of of the the age the golden age of hollywood and those actors and how they looked i mean we can find archival photos and see stuff in in pictorials about them lounging around but even half the time those were all staged photos that were done yeah. sort of like the precursor to the entertainment weekly photo or the vanity fair photo shoot right but the reality yeah, okay. you know they, they were wearing suits and and looked pretty dapper um because you know people dressed that way when you stepped out right but yeah. we're but we broke into a period in the 80s where there was this big divide between you know your 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 formal wear when you're in, in a business environment and your and your casual wear when you're not. Or I guess it even goes back to the sixties, but there's that whole yeah. thing where you know you wore a nice or like a crisp business suit in the eighties or whatever and you're in the office and then go home and put on the the other, you know, whatever. And yeah. and it's coming back I guess it's coming full circle. We're all of a sudden seeing, at least in terms of movie culture, the idea that the the characters in the film are gonna wear the same kinds of clothes that the celebrities might wear when they're out. And so we've gone back to the that style, like the golden age style where the photo of, you know, James Dean or uh, not James Dean, but like, you know, Sinatra, whoever it's, you know, his, his photo shoot or his photo stepping into a club looks exactly like his photo in one of the films he's in. Right. But, but, but I think there's a dark side to it, or maybe I'm just too cynical. Is that I think, no, no, there is. I think because it is this branding and recognition and this ever present sales force that is, is here. And so, you see the actors wearing, you know, fashion designer X in a movie, and then they're out in the real world wearing fashion designer X again. And so this, this uh, constant reinforcement of uh, commercial influences there all the time now, right? Like, yeah. So it, it, whereas the Rat Pack, uh, you know, they, they weren't sitting there uh, praising their Jimmy Choo's or what the heck ever, you know, uh, or their- That would be a very different version of the Rat Pack. Right. Yeah, but I mean that that, that we weren't at that stage of um, mass consumerism influenced everything that the Rat Pack was in, other than like cigarettes and whiskey, right? So it is interesting though that we've gotten to a point where I mean it's been decades now that actors have been hawking product products, not just being sponsors in advertising, but also doing promotional stuff. Like especially in the last ten years, you've seen a lot more exposure of actors doing the thing where they go to they go to events that are being sponsored or, you know, hosted by, by Stoli Vodka. And then they're, they're photographed constantly pouring that and serving it and talking about it and everything else. Mm-hmm. A live action commercial for the product, right? You've seen that mm-hmm. over these last 10 years um, in terms of what they're wearing and what they're doing, what they're driving, what they're drinking. And what I thought was interesting was fairly recently, some of the actors have taken on those 
they've taken on those affectations as business. So like Will Smith, is it Will Smith? No, it's, um, no, no, Jamie Foxx bought uh-huh. into a sunglasses company. So now he's doing a lot of things on his Instagram about, you know, like he's, I'm sitting on my private plane looking out the window, but he's wearing his own sunglasses, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Will Smith uh-huh. did that with something. And then, well, George Clooney and his tequila and, uh, yeah, and uh, Puff the P. Diddy with his Ciroc and <laughs> 50 Cent with vitamin water. And it just goes on and on No, but, and on. No, but, but in this case, though, I don't, 50, 50 Cent didn't buy into vitamin water, did he? No, he did. He was one of the original founders of vitamin water. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, God, it goes farther back than I thought. I remember George Clooney with a whiskey. And I remember, yeah. even, I, I remember I thought it was a pretty interesting component of the otherwise bottom feeder entourage was that uh, the guy turtle bought into a tequila company because he's like why are we sponsoring those why don't we just why don't we just start making you know why don't we become yeah. anyway anyway okay so go, back. Right. go ahead come back to the cast come back to the cast yeah. ruby rose as aries is great ian mcshane is always fabulous right i'm in, um, i'm annoyed that ruby rose is getting so much attention for her figure Hollywood oh, kid. See, I, see, I, I didn't. I didn't. That was the last thing I paid attention to in this film. To me, of it was the, the the sign language and the attitude no, 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 but, and the physicality of it. Right? Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And she was wearing a suit the whole time, which is great. But yeah, is, that actress is a very, very thin actress. And whether she is anorexic or whether she has a condition or whether she's just very, very thin, it's a it's a narrative about her, right? I'm well, so how about it's not? How about, how, about it's not, how about it's none of our effing business? <laughs> right. Well, no, but the thing is, you know, in Hollywood, you know, these, these celebrities, their, their physical manifestation is part of their commodity. And, yes. and Hollywood has this, this, this demand that everyone is this, this tiny little, tiny little but shapely figure. And so most women struggle, struggle, struggle to find a way to squeeze themselves into fitting that mold. And then, but so Ruby Rose is, is very skinny and so she also doesn't get to play because she's too skinny or she, you know, she doesn't have the, the big breasts or she doesn't have the hips. And so therefore, well, there's obviously something wrong with her. And it's kind of unfortunate because, and she's not the only one. Some of Blair gets a lot of a hard time about this and there are others, you know, all shapes and sizes, right? But the, yeah. the general, the general sort of conventional wisdom, I guess, has been like, well, in order to succeed in Hollywood as a, as a, as an actress, you have to be, you have to be thin. But Ruby Rose is one an example of an actress who is criticized for being too thin in Hollywood. <laughs> so, like, what and what is she supposed to do, right? Right. Anyway, I thought yeah, she was no, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. She has a lot of tattoos on her own, but I think they added a, quite a bit more um, for yeah. her character. But yeah, she, she she yeah she was badass with a side of chips in this movie, yeah. and, and the sign language was such a great touch. Yeah, I loved it, and I love that he knew sign language too. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, especially at the the final scenes, I'll, I'll see you. You know that was uh, that was really powerful. And I, I like the it. fact that she didn't. I like the fact that she wasn't the super bad in the at the end of the movie. He took her out pretty quick. She yeah. was great. She was impressive leading up, and she had this a certain um, sort of manifest as she was working her way through the movie. But when it came to the final confrontation in that mirror world or whatever, and he took her out pretty quick, and I like that. I mean, not everyone has to be this. this you know, this, the ultimate battle. Right, right, but but I thought I thought it was a little bit weird that he had more problems taking out Common than he did taking out uh, uh, well, it was a uh, Cassian, right? Yeah, 
than uh, than Aries. So yeah. th- th- I thought that was a little bit goofy. Um, but I also like the Larry Fishburne and Keanu. Every time they get on the screen, it's great to see them. Uh, yeah. Right? I, I the like them. King. Of course, uh, Ian McShane. He used scenery of chewing. Of course. A, a, a good, a well, a well, well into this movie, he was, he was definitely scenery chewing. He was like, I bought the yacht, so now I'm just going <laughs> to, you know. I don't know, but yeah, but he's fun. We'll let him do that. No, but 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 Ian McShane is Ian McShane in every movie. Right. He is, right? Um, Lance Reddick in this film always just made me burn because of Fringe cancel being canceled, just being so pissed off about it. Still, <laughs> but I love that guy so much, and he was so he was so great in Fringe, and even when he he did that little side slip into Lost briefly, you know, mm-hmm. ah, love him, love him. Uh, what else? What else? Bridget Monia- Monahan was the wasn't she his wick. wife wick. Yep. 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 I, I really like the mechanism that they played with when he was in and out of shock that she was oh no 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 i'm blending no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah she was dead yeah yeah, yeah she was dead. yeah i was yeah. side i was sidestepping into punisher which you need to catch up on no no i don't um you do <laughs> you really do but it's not so, the defenders dude okay okay no, no. or you iron should, fist watch you should watch <laughs> Iron Last fisting. time we talked, I said I would put one on your <laughs> iPad for you, and I haven't done it. Okay. I haven't as, long as, not, as long as it's not iron fisting. Uh, there was no iron fisting. Yeah. There were no references. Um, but that, there was also an element that I really liked in John Wick, is that it didn't fall trapped to these flashback scenes. Oh, yeah, like, totally. Right? Like, like there, there was nothing about his prior life. He didn't have, like, a flashback to when he was, you know, in the thick of it. And they, and they really just do these glimpses and flashes of his wife and so yeah. it doesn't fall into this big we understand he's tortured we understand he's pissed off we understand he's motivated to rectify the situation but we don't need to dwell on it yeah right? yeah i well and also um i liked with the exception of, i mean common took it a, a, an exception a long time to deal with but i liked overall that he was actually working his way through i wouldn't even say he was working his way through a series of bosses as much as like game video game bosses, more like he was working his way through different foes who had a very who had a varying degree of personal power, who had a lot of guys, right? right. And it was about so, getting to each of them, but it didn't right. mean that he had a blood like a blood a blood splattering ultra violent barely survived it encounter with each of them. He was actually yeah, no. fairly, you know, effective. Well, and and he didn't kill Common, right? He he. Right. Sam said, "Okay, to the hospital and take that out, or you will die." Uh, I did. It was a, I love those kinds of things. Right. It goes all the way back to the Road Warrior, right? Yeah, yeah. That it there, there was a little bit that dragged on where I thought it was it took on kind of an era of Scott Pilgrim versus the World and the crazy six X's and whatever that he had to work through all these different um, layers of folks trying to get him. But I understood why it was necessary. But yeah. Uh, I liked the the fact that there was a huge setup to get after Gianna D'Antonio, and then he that whole the the, the acceptance that she had about her fate, yeah. and the whole thing about letting her do it her way, and like there was such a big deal. I mean, I, the movie has had a lot of interesting set design and composition in terms of framing and everything else, but there was a lot that went into um, you know presenting a scenario where she was like, okay, I see, I see how this works out. And, uh, you know, I, give, give me the honor of doing it my way. And he lets her, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. put your own wrists, yeah. get into the pool, get the great shot, and then he takes her out anyway. 
Um, I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Was like, because I think he had to, because he had to be the one that let to leave his mark on it to prove that he did it, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. But you, you had but, this sense that there was some sadness or some just sort of, uh, it was the off yeah. right? Like these are people that he has worked with and dealt with and been involved with for years. He had a relationship with her of some kind, right? A familiar relation. Well, he had to. Yeah. He had to because, the, of you know, and again, they didn't dwell on the past and everything else. It was, it was a situation that was there. Yeah. But the relationship with Santino yeah. and how he got out and everything, right? And as her sister, obviously, they must have had uh, a pretty intense period of time where they knew each other pretty well. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 I, that one scene in, that they had in Rome, uh, with the big dance party, I was like, really? They just they just took all the extras from Matrix, Matrix. Revolutions yeah. or whatever and put them in. Like, really? Does it need to be this kind of alt goth? I'll tell you what. The, what I didn't like about that. Like, ah, I'll right. tell you what I didn't like about that. Um, uh, it's the it's the uh, it's the strip club problem. Okay, so a lot of movies try to show uh, scenes in strip clubs, whether it's the 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 criminal underworld guys are meeting to have a talk or it's the hero that's gone in to find someone or whatever. And depending on the, the, I guess, the target market of the movie or where the, the mindset of the director and the editor, but it goes one of two ways. 99% of the time, you get close-ups, you get these, these establishing shots showing whichever stripper the production liked the most, doing their whole thing, and then it pans them to the side or whatever, and now it's the character's turn to have a scene. Or you have the 1% time when you see some legs or whatever in the foreground or you see someone writhing around in the background, but they're out of focus because it doesn't matter. Because it's not, because they're, because just like it is in that business for a lot of people, they, they, are, not, right. they are not humans in this equation. Um, in other words, the strip club is not purient. It's a location, right. but they're not going to ogle the stripper in the establishing shot. Well, right. so this club scene broke that rule in a disappointing way for me because it was way too long watching the people dancing around and way too much attention on whatever European hybrid band that was. That's some band that's of some consequence to someone, right? And so Not we saw way too much of their setup. <laughs> I didn't need yeah. any of that. That whole thing could have been, you know, like look at how uh Look at how it's not one of his considered one of his better movies, but look how Michael Mann handled that kind of a scene in uh, Black Hat. Right? There was a whole public mm-hmm. festival with people dancing, and carrying on, and all this stuff happening. There was a lot of things he could have been focusing on, but it was entirely a mass of people for these guys to work their way through to shoot each other. Right. And I but, don't know. But, but even yeah, but but just look at John Wick one. Yeah. Right. Where they had the scene where it was a club and everything else, and it 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 didn't dwell on it. It was just a a place where his targets were. Yeah. And he just went in to get the targets, and that was it. There was no. He didn't have to exploit the exploitation factor that's already present in those establishments to make something more titillating or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, but and, but the thing is, what was disappointing about it was it was almost like two different heads making the same movie because. Later on, I wrote down in my notes that I liked the scene. It was very interesting that there was this whole sequence of casual silent silencer use sniping in a mall to the subway, right? And that whole sequence to get down to the subway, there's all that, you know, shooting from the, from the mezzanine level and threading between people and all that other stuff. There was a lot of that very well executed. 
in that sort of genre, that Jason Bourne style. So there was definitely mm-hmm. that presence in the movie. It was just like suddenly that club scene. Um, it, it almost, you know, it was almost to me, it was almost like someone wrote in the notes of the, the, the set breakdown reading the script was like, okay, we got to make this big spectacle to hide the fact that there's all this gunfire and all this elaborate stuff happening back. We have to have something, we have to have the big, the big party and the big event to be so, be so loud and so crazy that you don't notice the other stuff. Again, didn't need to. Mm-hmm. It. it should have all have been about a complex moving target scenario <laughs> that they just have to get through. Yeah, the, the, there's my target. I have to go take yeah. care of my target. That's it. Right. Uh, I, I yeah. So I also, so here's another thing I really liked. So there's a lot of visual, there's some visual stuff in this movie that was really great. I mean, there's so many things that would look so great in this movie, just like the first one, but the set design was really great. His house before it burned down was fun. Um, his little, I love the whole sequence. The almost, I guess, should I say metaphorical <laughs> sequence of him breaking the concrete, getting all his shit out of it, out of his like, secret stash, using the shit, and then and then burying it again, concrete and filling it up. Yeah. It's metaphor, but it was really methodical. I thought it was really interesting to watch him do that. Right? Well, and, rapid curing concrete. Well, and also him going back to the scene opening where he goes back <laughs> to get his car. Yeah, right? which is just brilliant. And mm. Peter Stramari, always good to see uh in any movie right i thought i thought it it was a little uneven of, of in that scene in that the narrative suggested that he was after his car but then he actually drove he went broke in he even like made a point of like oh, i don't want to be seen hopped in his car hauled ass got out of there drove in circles for three blocks went back to the facility smashed the car and then went to the guy mm-hmm. so it wasn't really about the car but it was about probably because then he ends up dragging the car back to John Leguizamo and to fix it. Right. So it was about the car, but he also had to take care of the target. Yeah. And so to me, that was a completely, it was a, it was a story. It was a storytelling problem. I didn't like the circular nature of it. I felt like he needed to either take care of the Uh guy and then go, or he needed to steal the car from one compound and drive it to the second compound where the boss was to make a point and then leave. But the Uh fact Stole from place, drove around for three blocks, beat up a couple of motorcyclists, came back again, smashed back into the facility he snuck out of, and and went to deal with the guy. To me, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold it against you, but it's just it just is no. I, 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 but he forms these attachments with things, right? Obviously, the dog, <laughs> yeah, and the cars and the guns, right? So I, I I get it, but you know, I hear I hear what you're saying. Speaking of forming attachments to things, uh, one of my favorite images in this entire movie which we thankfully got to see several times they obviously had a similar feeling about it was the rad switchboard women in their like yes. retro secretary garbs with the a-line skirt with tattoo sneaks everywhere yeah i felt like i was like well this movie is targeting me in a very specific way <laughs> i'm watching this alone yeah love it, it was it, yeah that, that was really great and again this whole architecture is kind of throwback uh, mm-hmm. bubble right that that's there it was uh it was very appealing aesthetically, right? Yeah. And the, and the sommelier, the sommelier is the armorist in the suits, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the Kevlar fiber and everything. It's just, you know, it, that, that had that James Bond, but the, but the villain version, right? So that was, that was nice. Was it the, was it the sommelier played by uh, Peter, 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 Peter? Yeah, Peter Serafinowicz. Who, yes. Who's, 
whose permanent claim to fame is going to be as the as the I know he's I know he's the tick, and that's great. But his permanent claim to fame will always be that he's the member of the Nova Corps. It was like, you know, what a bunch of a holes. <laughs> Yes. They edited out of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but was in the trailers and should have stayed in. Right? Yeah, it, it, it's a. Uh, but they, he did have one powerful scene right when he's dying, when he reaches out to Rocket, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, right. So there, he did have his. He did have his moment in the sun, uh, right before he gets rubbed out. But yeah, of course. So Blake, for like twenty-five years or thirty years, I have watched movies and TV shows. This is well before a podcast, right? This is well before even the blog where I was reviewing stuff. This is even well before uh, our buddy Carl and I were trying to do that radio show. I would sit there and scribble notes to myself about things that caught my interest in what I was watching, right? And then over the years, I would not, I'd be writing it in the dark and it would be all confusing. My, you know, I'd read it later, like, what the hell am I saying? Right? I can't read this. I don't, I don't know what this is. But even worse, I would not, have the presence of mind to title each page what I, what material it was like <laughs> this show this episode because it was so obvious at the time right well i a couple of years ago mm-hmm. i made a point of i dug up like a ream of these notes off of various like little notebooks and things and i scanned them all so you, had, you, 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 you found the tom c scrolls basically i did but, uh, I did. So I scanned them all. I put them in Evernote. And then every once in a while I go through and I pick. So what actually the way it most often comes up is that, you know, Evernote, do you use that application? I don't know if you are familiar with it, right? You? Evernote? It, it is. So I, I, I use Evernote a lot. And I, that is what I use for all my note taking for work. Yeah. Okay. So Evernote's, I mean, it's, it's principal claim to fame to making it, um, you know, deviating from its competition is that they bought the image recognition companies so that you can, you can scan, you can sort, you don't have to tag everything necessarily. You can type in keywords and if it can find that in an image, it'll pull the response up. It's a really powerful tool. So I will type things in periodically to find notes to myself or things that I scanned that I wanted to keep. And it will give me a number of responses and then it'll give me about 50 solutions that are coming from those random scribbled review notes from things going back 30 years. And I'll always take a moment to read one or two of those pages and be like, what the hell was I saying? Because it might have been some really clever oh, oh, something oh. from some sitcom. But usually if it interested me, it was random, esoteric. So now you take the esoteric com- quote and you pull it out of the context and it just becomes you know, like a fever dream. The reason I bring this up is that I have a comment here. Common, this is the end of the line. <laughs> Did he have a did he have a witty comment in this movie? What was that? Yeah, no, it, it, it was when they were on the train, the subway. So, so is it when he stabbed him and said he couldn't take the knife out or else he'd die? Did he say this is the end of the line? Was it his? Was that an action movie statement that he said? I don't think it was when he got stabbed. I think it was when they said when everybody else cleared off of the bus, off of the subway train, and he said this is the end of the line. One way or the other, we end it now, and right. uh, that was it. All right. Yep. A little side note about my Evernote use. Okay. Uh, there you go. I wrote down that I was interested in the fact that the homeless ward had a handy furnace. What do you think that referred to? I don't remember anymore. So the, I, they had that big furnace down in the netherworld with the, the Bowery King, right? Oh, right. And, uh, right? And, I, and I also like the little twist of fate where they, uh, the Bowery King was actually had a history with Wick. And it wasn't such a positive one that added a little bit of nuance to payback to it. Um, right. 
but but again again the, the subterranean Larry realm, the, yeah the Larry Fishburne and Barry King and this whole this whole culture that had popped up and it, it it just added that little twist like they did with the assassins who were street musicians uh, <laughs> on the street corner, right right yeah I remember and, the time I was like I always expected that on Bart and it never happened <laughs> and then of course all the homeless people are just a secret army yeah right. Uh, Right, that, that are collecting and pooling their resources to, to buy guns and ammo for the end of days. Uh, yeah. Right, I, I, there's a brilliance there that is, uh, you take these little things you see in everyday life and you connect it with some malevolent purpose and it's really yeah, sure. delightful to see. You know? Oh yeah. Um, I will say, I think overall, one of the things that I took from John Wick 2 that I didn't like was that more so than the first one, I felt the same feeling of watching someone else play a video game. So to me, I don't know if that makes sense. To me, when I'm watching like a POV, like a POV, like a POV shooter game. Yeah. Like, so, so sometimes when I'm watching action movies and they're very well core, like very complex and highly choreographed action movies, it's a slippery slope. Either it's incredibly visceral and exciting or I'm watching someone smoothly working their way through one of those levels, right? And though this movie was still very technically proficient, there were more times when I felt distance from it and kind of felt like I was watching someone play versus being like, oh, yeah. Because in the first one, I felt a lot more invested. Like, I felt more like I was in the action. And in this one, I felt a little bit more like I'm watching the action, I guess. Oh, so, so and, and you already know the outcome, right? Of course he's going to live. Of course he's going to right. come to the end of it. And of course he's going to kill everybody that stands in his way. Whereas the first one, because you didn't know. If, yeah, you, you felt know, like he could die. In that. Were, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Like at the end, he, he could very well die, right? That, that, and now, now it's got this cartoonish flavor that uh, like the diehards, right? Die Hard 1, awesome movie. Every other Die Hard, horrible. Yeah, right. Uh, right? Uh, First, I'm wearing uh, my Nakatomi shirt right now, actually. <laughs> Yippee ki yay! The um, uh, R.I.P. Man, R.I.P. Many props up. So um, <laughs> the uh, so it's that that's what I'm saying that it could go on this journey <clears throat> that could be very very awful to behold, like uh, Matrix, and then what came after uh, mm-hmm. Ocean's. 11 and what came after uh so i hope it doesn't go down that road and and i do hope that there's a third one that he does end up dying to atone for what he knows he's done in his life yeah but i don't i would actually i would like to him for him to die in the third one i think that'd be good but but so but there's i don't know what i have trouble putting my finger on why some scenes pull me out and other scenes draw me in when it's that same level of precision. I love that precision choreography in these, uh, this sort of modern yeah. era of these kinds of battles. It's melee combat like with guns, you know, like it's, it's gun foo, right? <laughs> right. But, but so, so to me, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know what scenes in particular you're talking about, but the ones that I kind of found unnecessary, like the club scene, the dance scene and everything else, yeah. is, is when they, you know, the great scene where they take it to the, the cyberpunk uh, secretarial staff and sit yeah. out, right? And then all these folks get these messages on their phones and then these mom and pop assassin shops that start coming <laughs> yeah. up, right? Yeah. And it's just like, really? You, I mean, we, we know what's going to happen. These, he's just going to shred through them. So why, why is this now the gauntlet that he has to go through to reach the conclusion? It just seems I like the sumo guy take, being taken out. That was great. 
Right, but well, so that appealed, but that that appealed yeah. to me because of the oddball homage to James Bond, right? So but there's something. You know what I think it might be? It might be that there's not a sense of risk at that point in John Wick Two, where he's doing that thing, where he's fighting multiple people at once. You feel like he is mowing through them, and the entertainment yeah. in how creatively he mows through them. And so therefore there's nothing, there's no risk. So you're not engaged in it, I guess. Whereas in John Wick 1, you thought he was still one misstep away from being killed. Um, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the movie uh, Equalizer with Denzel Washington, which was like, it came and went. I didn't have any expectations that was going to be good. And it was extremely proficient, really good in its combat and and how, and hit, you know, the, 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 the mechanism by which he would map out. Did you see it? I did, but the, yeah. the, 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 the one that I would throw out there that I thought was a much better movie of the same thing was Man on Fire. Yeah, of course. Of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that no, I agree. Like, but but specifically with regards to this, it was this whole thing about how he was mapping out the room and he was timing, he was working it all out in his head how long it was going to take to do it. And then he was executing his plan to see, um, yeah. you know, which they used, which they totally used in uh, Sherlock Holmes in, in a similar fashion, right? Which was great. Uh-huh. But but I but but in the same in the sense of in the whole thing about not being invested because you don't think they're going to come to any harm, um, you know I I just watched Kingsman too and it has strengths and weaknesses but it reminded me that in the Kingsman fantasy world it's all about elaborate angles and cinematography and choreography in these really flamboyant superhero style maneuvers that are completely unrealistic. But it's about how and, and, creative they can do it, and I was still engaged because I was like, "Well, that was cool, and that one was cool." So, um, well, well, let's talk about we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk about Kingsman too uh, at some point because I have a much different reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should. I mean, from King, and, and, and I liked I like Kingsman one a lot. Kingsman no, no, 2, I, I, have some, I have a lot of problems with that movie too, but I think that's going to be hour six or seven of our of our discussion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But but, um, but uh, yeah. I, I, I so so to me it was actually even the character John Wick himself uh, when those mom and pop co op assassins started showing up is like really these guys are just like annoyances like little come on you know what's going to happen this is get out of my way yeah. uh, like it couldn't be bothered right like really you're going to yeah. do this um, and so it, it wasn't that imminent threat arch enemy personal kind of thing that you have with the, the major, I, I won't say, uh, we'll just call it protagonist and antagonist because there are no heroes in John Wick. Right. Uh, so, right. Um, so the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff's on the line, this matters kind of battle scenes. These are just kind of filler to get to the, the, the main plot points. Right. I got Right. And you're right. In a way, that's part of the problem is if you feel, if it, it gets boring, if you feel like it has no purpose other than to stall time. Right. Because these movies are more, most interesting when either there is a linear narrative that get, has them pushing through a series of obstacles that are defined. Right. Yep. Old school, you know, and consequent and consequential and consequential or right. It's it, it's cool when the 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 story the tables turn on them or the story gets twisted halfway through and you realize what you were watching wasn't what you were watching. That's cool too. Right. In this yeah, sense, no. it really was the watching someone play a video game. It really was just clear out these guys mm-hmm. to get to the boss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I have a great tagline for this movie that I wrote down. 
which I think is hilarious. I think it was probably three or four bullets in or whatever when I wrote it, but in quotes, it says one squib at the museum. I know. And the other thing I, so I'm just going to plant a flag here now and let the whole production crew behind John Wick know if common and wick form a buddy team in John Wick three, I'm walking out of the theater. Oh, totally. Totally. Right. Cause I think that's where we're headed. And that is uh, completely unacceptable. I agree. I would have been down with a John Wick or a, oh man, I don't even remember her character's name, but a Ruby Rose team up. Aries. Aries was her name. Aries. Mm, that's God of right. War. God of War. Yeah. That would have been really interesting if there was a team up with her because the entire movie she wouldn't be talking. Mm-hmm. Like with all sign language and stuff. That would have been cool. Well, I was hoping that. I was hoping that Aries would live so they could do a spinoff just focusing on her. Oh, totally. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I found her much more compelling than Common or, yeah. you know, Kino or any of those folks. So, yeah. I think we've covered John Wick, too. What do you think? I think we have. I did, but uh, I, I just do want to point out when I walked into John Wick the first time, I thought, oh, God, here we are again. Another Keanu flick that's just going to suck the life out of the room how pleasantly surprised i was <laughs> by that movie <laughs> and and john <clears throat> too although it was uh it was like 10 percent less in the in my estimation it was still enjoyable so kudos to keanu in keeping the fire lit no you know i think part of, the, part of it is john wick was a surprise because you didn't expect it to be the kind of project it was yeah and with john wick too your expectations are high because you know what it was going to be and then it didn't, yep. quite, you know, it's like an example of where a sequel didn't quite uh, live up to the, pro- of the potential of the first movie's evolution, but it was still a serviceable movie. Still fun. But it didn't but I, that the first one had, partially because at that time, you're right, we were just like, what is even happening right now? And everyone right. saw John Wick before me. They were talking about it, I remember, for weeks. Like, Blair and others were like, oh, John Wick. And I remember thinking, like, it's just a, like an action movie with John with Keanu Reeves, like why is it? It's, it yeah, it's hardcore Henry with Keanu, like right. exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you know what's funny? It's it's unfortunate that um that, that Chris isn't on the show tonight because um this would have been another one of our uh, um, sessions where he just sits there and shits on everything that we're talking about. <laughs> that he's talking about because Chris does not like John Wick. He does not really. Like, he does not understand why people um, hold it in high regard. He does not. He does not appreciate that aspect of it that we're kind of that, that we're excited about, which I think is a completely yeah. valid it's a completely valid position, but I wish he was here to defend himself in all of his wrongness. Yes, I value diversity in all things. So but uh, it, would be, it, it would be great it would be great to have a conversation about that. Greetings, friends of Robot Kraken. I have a question for you. Do you love sweet, sweet art? Do you like ads in the middle of your podcasts? Well, good news, because here's one for you. You need to go to thirdraildesignlab.com. This may or may not be my own illustration site, but let me tell you what. There are hundreds of 11 by 17 museum quality prints available for sale covering all kinds of fandoms. Your favorite superheroes are there. Your favorite crazy robots are there. 
your favorite film and TV properties are there. And if they're not, well, you let me know, and maybe they soon will be. You also have the chance to uh, commission original art, and there are a number of art books that are also available. So if you need to find something great as a gift for a loved one or a friend, if you need to wallpaper your house with some insulated material and you want it to look great, go to thirdraildesignlab.com and find some sweet, sweet art today. All right, that was an ad. It's over. Back to it. So, Blake. So, Tom. You know what I'd like to talk about? More. Pasta? Pasta? No. More. And that is a movie that I actually unintentionally had to save for the plane, even though I had intended to watch it at home and I didn't get to it. Atomic Blonde. Mm -hmm. So I was like super into this movie when it was announced. It was sort of it was sort of sold in the pre-production was like when that script was when they talked about it being greenlit into a production and they were talking about all the early stuff about it. It was being sold as female Jason Bourne. But at the same time, it was being talked about almost in a in a dismissive way. Like, well, it's just gonna be female Jason Bourne, which I thought was but odd it, because it completely was not it was female not. Jason Bourne, right? It no. was it was yeah. it was not even close. It was much better. <laughs> it probably was. I don't yeah. know that Atomic Blonde could exist without Jason Bourne. But I'm glad that Jason Bourne happened first for this movie because I thought it was incredible. And, you know, the thing is, yeah. even, like, you know, from a casting standpoint, it was not the direction that I initially would have taken it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, like, but you understand... But you understand that, like, so I don't, I'm just going to put it out here right, right up front. I think one of the reasons why I like both John Wick and Atomic Bond is David Leach, the director. Mm. Like, his, like his whole approach, because he did both films. Yep. And, and it was, because he was on John Wick with Chad Stahelski, but only Stahelski was credited for it. Oh, interesting. David, yeah, Leach was part of it. And um, so it's, it's, it, it, I, there are a lot, so to me, I, I would draw a lot more parallels between Wick and Blonde than I would between Born and Blonde. So it's official. There, there's a method to our madness. We're talking about John Leach films today. <laughs> David, David Leach, David, David Leach. Leach. That, David I mean. Leach, yeah. So, okay. So, but, so part of the initial uh, issue I had when it was first... And, really, and also... Yeah. And Deadpool 2, so also just the prelude, something that I'm really looking forward to as well, David Leach is going to direct Deadpool 2. That excites me. Or is directing. He yeah. is, yeah. That excites yeah. me very much. Well, when it was yeah. when all the early imagery was coming through, it was sort of like, well, okay, something about me has not really ever liked Charlize Theron, and I don't know what it is, with the exception of Fury Road. Which is, which is phenomenal. Right. But the vast majority of the time, I couldn't get her out of her. Like, I couldn't get... Charlize Theron as an act, not that she has an, not that I was applying some sort of celebrity identity to it, but in every role that she played, I felt like it was Charlize Theron. Okay, wait, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to call you on that right away. Monster, okay. come on. Okay, uh, to be fair, I, okay, A, I didn't see Monster, and B, that was Charlize Theron and a lot of prosthetics, though. No, no, but, but I'm just saying that, that you can't say that she's the same in every movie because no, that, that not. was not I'm right. That right, experience. That's that's right. that was my that was my baggage that I bring to. Yeah, and and I think the tipping point for me was Arrested Development season three, 
when she was <laughs> on in that role, she didn't, she didn't, she wasn't effective in the physical comedy that I thought that they were aiming for. Have the big giant ex, ex dancer blonde woman stumble all over herself. Uh, it didn't really work for me. And then she had that weird child affect, affect thing going on. That's what, but, to me, but, but, but I think you're missing the obvious. To me, the biggest reason why that was such a tweaker in Arrested Development is that Char- Charlize Theron is on fucking Arrested Development. Like, <laughs> right? Like that, that's the whole point. It really is sort of like arguing. Sean, Sean Connery was just being a dick in that whole sequence. Like, Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. The fact that he's there. Like, come on. That's the whole, right? Anal bum covers for a thousand, Trebek. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so. The game's afoot. Oh, you know, I have been, because I'm in Indonesia right now, I haven't been able to uh, watch Saturday Night Live and knowing that he's on right now, just, oh. That's so, yeah. Like, Please when we're done here, When we're done here, I'm going to go watch it. Uh, all right, so here's the thing, though, about Shogi's Theron. Okay, I think she's interesting looking. She can be interesting. Just for I liked her in Prometheus. I liked her in Prometheus a lot. I did, too. She was, she was, right. she was right. like one of the positive things in Prometheus, right? No, she actually, she she defeated my bias in that movie. But I went into that movie with a negative bias about her. And it was the same negative bias I had going into this one, which was, I look at it and said, and when it was first announced, I was like, God damn, why isn't it this actress or that actress instead of shows now? And then when the initial imagery was re- released that showed, you know, some whatever footage, or actually in this case, it was just, you know, a couple of stills. And mm. I was like, well, that's interesting. However, it still could be this actress or this actress, right? And the same thing I felt with Prometheus. Like, well, okay, except it's still the potential would have been more interesting if it was a different actress. Okay, that's it. Really? Okay. That's okay, so it. I, yeah. no, no, no. At, the, at the onset, when I first get into it. Yeah. Then in Prometheus and in this movie, once it got going, I was like, well, that's actually perfect, <laughs> right? Atomic Blonde is a project that it's hard to imagine this being with anyone else but her. Exactly. So, so I, after the movie, it's like, I am yeah, the pro completely because I went into it like, well, like by the time I recorded it and was prepared to watch it, I had, I knew that it was, I saw enough of a trailers and, 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 and read enough about it to know that I was going to like it. So I wasn't worried about it. Uh-huh. But from the minute the thing started, I was, I was completely invested and I thought, well, I cannot imagine this being with anybody else. No, so no. They're, 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 yeah. violently beaten. Yep. To me, to me, and and so the the other surprising thing to me out of the movie because I was not surprised by Charlie's Throne being very effective and compelling in the role, it's how good the combination of James McAvoy and Charlie's Throne was. Yeah, to me. Well, how good that, James that, McAvoy is as an antagonist or as an antagonist, right? Well, yeah, or just as an actor, I think he's really underrated. Like Split, we haven't even talked about Split ever. That uh, that's to me, I can't believe he didn't get nominated for an Oscar, but. That, that's just me. Okay. The, um, wait, 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 wait. So, wait a minute. Hold on a second. No, First of but, all, was this film, wasn't this film actually completed before Split? No. No? Are you sure? I'm, well, the, my gut instinct is no. Okay. Well, I will say that... Um, so, Split it, was 2016. So, no, Split was 2016, and Atomic Blonde was 2017. Well, but I thought there was something about the production of it was... Slip. That, that could be. That that could be. That could no, be. No, no, but you know, but I think what was exciting to me about McAvoy was that 
we've seen a lot of movies where the handsome guy turns out to be a bad guy. Um, or like, you know, I mean, obviously we've seen a lot of that with, well, it's refreshing to see a movie where the ugly guy really is a villain. No. <laughs> no. I'm saying McAvoy did not come across as the handsome guy who's going to backstab you. The handsome guy that's going to turn out to be the bad guy. He came off as violently, dangerously in the middle and unsettling in the entire thing. Yes. You know you can't trust him, but he's still charismatic. Can and he, he's like, right, but he's only looking out for himself. Yeah, but he was so, I mean... What? I almost felt like his... Not the energy and the sort of the charm and the wheel, the the sort of coke fueled fixer component to his character that was happening, but there was something about the uncertainty about his existence, loyalties, and his existence is what they were aiming for with DJ in the Last Jedi. They wanted yes. someone who was a rebel, who was like like the true Star Wars rebel. Like you couldn't mm -hmm. figure out whether they were coming or going and what their motivations were. And they were really charming, but also a little trouble, problematic, whatever else. DJ was an attempt to bring that back. Mm -hmm. McAvoy's performance here is, I feel like, the, I mean, it, was, it doesn't apply. You couldn't play this kind of character necessarily in Last Jedi, but it was that, it was that I can't take my eyes off you, but I don't trust you. But at the same time, where are my pants? You know, like there's something about yeah. him that was very compelling. I liked it. So, so can can I can I try to get a little deeper here? Yeah. For a minute. So I think I think what uh gets lost in the conversation about Atomic Blonde a lot is putting in the context of the eighties and the soundtrack mm -hmm. is fantastic with it, right? That's a I character think, in this movie. It is, it is. Absolutely. But I think Mac but I think McAvoy is the his character in it is the perfect one of the perfect embodiments of the entire eighties zeitgeist. That it's all flash and dash. It is all, you know, the, the superficial, la la, get along with everyone. Oh yeah, bump bump, pointing fingers, all that deal maker. I'll trust me, I'll, I'll serve you right. But, but just the, the hollowness and the betrayal and everything else, it was, that is the perfect embodiment of a villain from the 80s. Because everything yeah. is loosey goosey, nothing matters but me. And, you know, outside of my delivery vehicle, which is my charisma and my, my vernacular and my wit um that at the end of the day i'm an effing snake man and oh, right? i can't so i don't even know where to go with this movie because the it's not just the setting the setting being berlin in the 80s combined with the well, yeah. tone of the film being this incredible use of soundtrack right this is another Unbelievable use Absolute of music. Benchmark. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. benchmark in using the music to form the story in the, in the scenes, combined with the, the narrative style. Not just the fact that it's a, it's a flashback sequence movie and she's in an interview and all this, but the fact that they were using imagery and style of this weird sort of urgent 80s thing in the con construction of the individual scenes was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And also what I liked was... You and I are children, not of the eighties. Well, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we we were kind of on realistically, we were on sort of either end. I was in the middle, and you're in the later. But the point is, we, 
we both experienced it from the West perspective, right? Uh -huh. Like our perception of the 80s is American pop culture in the 80s. And and how awful it was. <laughs> yeah, and the degree and the degree of bleed in from the Cold War that we got from the limited news news coverage and the Cold War ranting between you know like Reagan against the Soviets and that kind of stuff and but do you know what I'm saying? Everything was from our perspective and like it's something that I've learned as I've gotten older and I've re um recontextualized music that I've listened to growing up, right? Mm -hmm. Thanks to the internet I can start seeing I can get more information about bands that I took for granted and the read about their backgrounds and thinking about the context in which they created their music. It, it constantly reminds me that, you know, I, I, I pressed all the music as well as any other, you know, anything else I consumed, mm -hmm. I pressed it into my worldview, right? Like it never occurred to me growing up that these bands that I was hearing not only were they coming from Europe, they were not only coming from other countries and having other experiences, let alone someone in South Carolina having a different experience than me in California, right? Just like different country. Not only that, but the context in which they were creating the music and the urgency of it and the, what it was, you know, the rebellion that went into, like think about when you're a kid and you don't really understand, you don't get the real reason why punk was important, right? Uh -huh, like, uh -huh. oh, it sounds good. And then later on you look at it, you're like, wow, politically this was a really big deal. All that stuff ties into how this movie is structured. Setting this all against the fall of the, of the wall and all the cultural components that went into that mm -hmm. was a character in the movie. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Yep. But I, and, and I really like the fact that... Um, so the other part that we haven't talked about is the role of Delphine, who is that... Uh, who's that actor? Sophia... Sophia Batella. Yeah. She is just fantastic. And the fact that you have this kind of junior innocent being sacrificed on the altar of the war between um, Broughton and uh, Percival, right? That it is, it's, it was such a great metaphor for the power struggle at the time. And then the fact that uh, Spyglass, right? How she gets portrayed sneaking Spyglass out. It was just phenomenal, and then the and then the music ties it all together in a such a compelling way. She, right? you know what, Sophia, Sophia's Delphine was the skateboard in that roundup of the dudes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I have a thing for that actress. I have to say, I really like um, actresses of, you know, from a from a I don't know vanilla Western perspective, have some exotic component to them that doesn't sort of fit the mold of what is internationally, you know, sort of typical. I mm -hmm. love actresses or actors who, who jump around in the ethnicities of the characters they're playing in different films and have, um, can, can kind of, they're a chameleon. They can kind of be all these different things. She's right. in every major film that she's done. She's been a different ethnicity and a different type of character. Um, I think I'll always love her in Kingsman the most, but man, she is. Yeah. No, she, she, she could play any role in the ethnicity and do it very well. Hot chicken sandwich, right? Unbelievable. Hot yeah. Super hot. And also, you know, obviously spoilers abound in all of our discussions about anything, but you know I have a real problem with watching someone aware that they're being strangled or drowned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. scene was so bad. That, that scene was another one of those ones where it's picking at all of my buttons. She's outside yeah. ringing the bell. 
and upstairs she gave it a good try and she almost succeeded and she's in, yeah, yeah. And just a, just a, like like one hair width away from living right yeah yeah so brutal so, so brutal so what did you think of john goodman in this and the fact that uh charlie's is actually a cia agent posing as a british mi6 uh, who's posing as a Russian agent to inform politics <laughs> <laughs> and everything else? I thought that, okay. that layering of everything, right? And the fact that so in addition, James McAvoy, he's the only one that knows that she's Satchel, right? Right, and, and so he thinks. Well, one of his motivations is to turn her out because he thinks that she's ratting everybody out for the Russians. When in fact she's a double flip, right? Not only is she not British and not Russian, but she's CIA. Well, um, his motivations were a little shaky, almost. I, to me, in a sense, I think he oh, saw, yeah. once he got as, access to that information, I think he saw more of her in, more of him in her than he expected. I think, and, I, I think, was, and I think that's the initial attraction between them, right? Yeah, she was a commodity to him. Not yeah. necessarily a motivation to, 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 to out her, to me. Okay, but, but also the, the commodity agent. perspective. Right. But that commodity perspective, Charlize viewed everyone as a positive or negative commodity as well, yeah. right? Does that well, mean except why, for the breakdown of her Delphine, but yeah. Yeah, but that's why in, so with the scene when she takes out Percival, mm-hmm. I had not yet decided that she was Satchel, although um, unfortunately in movies like this, we got to a point where you, you introduce a secret, you, you inter- introduce the existence of a secret agent. Mm-hmm. It's the gun on the mantle. So you automatically are focusing on that in the context of the story. And you're like, well, okay. So, because you think, that's a, you think that's a big reveal, right? You think that's going to be right. the driver. And right. so I was thinking, by that point, I was thinking, okay, so she is Satchel. But, does Sat- but is Satchel really a, a double agent that's been dropping, you know, you know pa- passing information across both parties? Or is Satchel really a British plant? to make the Russians think that it's, you just see what I'm saying? Like right. I was, I was in three but, layers into the onion at that, in that scene, but I wasn't all the way in. Right. But and then of course it turns out to be, this a CIA onion dip. Right. Right. But at the end of the movie, when you go back and you think about that scene, it's amazing because mm-hmm. McAvoy had his fingers in all those pies and she had fingers in even more pies. And he thought when she's like, well, I caught Satchel and he's like, oh, that's how you're going to play this. He thought it was all about just covering her ass for being a double agent. Not mm-hmm. he had no idea that she was a quadruple agent, right? Like that was yeah. astounding to me. So you asked me what I thought about the fact that well, what I thought about Goodman and what I thought about the fact that she was a quadruple agent. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it, and I actually did not expect it. So I ah. enjoyed. Now I didn't expect it. I thought that she. I thought we were landing on her being Russian, and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. I actually believe that. So I thought that when that scene started, I thought, well, there's the, there's the trick. She was a triple agent, right? Uh-huh. So when the reveal came that she was CIA, even when even when she was in that sequence in Paris and had to take all out, out all the all the Russians and deal with that whole thing, yeah, I thought she was just being cleaned up, right? When she yeah. gets the thing and she's and she's with Goodman, I was like, oh man, <laughs> like I I did not see that coming. But yeah, I, I'm just saying that uh, the Goodman, as well as an act that in this movie where I thought he did it very well, he's having quite a resurgence uh, yeah. as an actor, which is great to see. Um, and then, and then, what about the Percival saying that his, you know, that final speech that he had 
the only thing to be learned was that I love fucking, I fucking love Berlin. <laughs> right. Well, like, yeah, I mean, this movie really painted, it, it put in full color all this imagery that we've had on the outskirts of our, of our perceptions over these, over these last decades. Um, all things are possible. All perspective to me. Right. Right. What? But Berlin, all things are possible, but nothing is probable. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. The, like the punk, the, the whole idea of the punk rock movement, you know, rebel against authority and rebel against this and this, you know, in my upbringing uh, in California, this was dickhead white guys complaining about other dickhead white guys in suits. Like it just didn't, it didn't have any urgency to me. I appreciated that guys, people wanted to do mohawks and they wanted to, or people want to be goth types or they want to do this, they want to do that because it was their personal expression. And, and I, and I was certainly, when I was younger, I was of the age where I appreciated that you flick someone off and you're like, yeah, you know, but, but then you put it in the perspective of this movie, these kids going to those underground, those underground clubs and partying yeah. and writing, you know, like fuck you and putting, you know, anarchy symbols and things and like blah, 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 all that, the graffiti and all the stuff that they were doing you put that in the context of the, of the police raid and everyone is panicking and running away. It puts it in a totally different perspective because we're accustomed to the, the narrative in our, in our lifetime of, of people who would rebel against the regime, right? Or people yes. who rebel against the structure and how that is dangerous. Mm-hmm. But rebellion would be in the form of culture is a really interesting, it's a very human phenomenon, but it's something that I have not had a lot of exposure to. Having and, and, up in the hellmouth of culture of Los Angeles, oh, where culture. But, but but so and it also strikes a chord because it's never more relevant in America like than today. Yeah, right. And right. so it, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that was deliberate or not, or just opportunistic. But you know, the the culture wars spilling over into shooting wars, spilling over into you know international drama. It's uh, it's never been more real than it is today. I think the movie's uh, casting was incredible, dude. Uh, Eddie Marsan as Spyglass. Well, oh my God, yeah. The, well, yeah, Spyglass. Yeah. Um, I'm not used to him being a protagonist, really. I'm trying to think of what he's been in. But dude, do you think he's really, do, do you think that he was a protagonist role? Because it was more, I thought he was a uh, well, uh, casualty. Sure, not, not, not necessarily a, oh, he's in Deadpool 2? Yeah. Well, so, again, not, at least... The leech connection. The leech connection. Yeah, That's yeah, true. but so not so much. Not so much that um, he's a protagonist, but rather not somewhat sympathetic. You know, like he's a character actor that I know associate with someone that is in this kind of a role where he was, you know, a, he, he's, yeah. he's he's a defecting bureaucrat basically, right? Okay. Um, so yeah, and and like and like Bridge of Spies. Did you see that movie? I have it. <laughs> I have it here actually. Not yet. So. So Bridges Spies, the, the the fellow who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in that, I forget, I'm blanking on his name right now. It, it So uh, Spyglass and that dude, uh, the similarities in their approach and acting style and role in the plot development are so eerily similar, other than the fact that um, Satchel, uh, I mean Spyglass family, he was trying to get out of East Berlin, out. But um it's. I would say it would be very interesting to watch Bridge of Spies, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, for sure. And yeah, Atomic yeah. Bond together because they kind of represent the whole gamut of that whole miasma of Berlin. Oh, I love Tinker Tailor. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So I. So the whole the things like the wrinkle of having to bring the family and how she had to adapt to 
to uh, changing circumstances that were because of information held from her. The, the elements like that are the kind of thing that completely succeed in creating an investment uh, tension in movies. Yeah. Like, like in, a, in the hands of another director, in the hands of another storyline, like, uh, you know, in the sort of the, the, the bad boys world of, of, of ac- urgent action movies that doesn't really have a, you know, any tonal weight to it. The innocent, they're the guy that's going to, you know, testify. We got to get him to the safe house. And, oh, here's his family. You're like, ah, it's just a series of reasons to get the guy killed. Mm-hmm. In this one, oh, and we're also going to bring his family. In her mind, you could immediately see that it's like there's 16 new levels of complication to making this work. Mm-hmm. And everything is on the bleeding edge of working to begin with, right? Like, I, I love that the little details in this movie that other, in other stories wouldn't have meant much were huge to me. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the fact that, I, to me, it put more of a, I wouldn't say a sympathetic amount, but an imp, in, empathetic relationship to it that you're kind of rooting for this guy to get out. Yeah. yeah. And, and he just gets effed over by the system and by the complicit participation of players in that system. Yeah. That it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, 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 an appropriate tale for how in the realm of multinational politics that no one really matters except for the ones that are left standing at the end of the day. Well, it's no, no one really matters in the, in the belly of the machine. Right. Right. It's all sauce. The the political construct is, or this, I don't know, you know, espionage political construct is entirely, it's its own engine, right? Uh No one's driving the engine. It's amazing. It really is in in the stories. Right. But there's Um, an interesting interesting question that gets generated by that whole thing though. Why didn't the CIA step in to try and pull things out of the fire at any step of the way. Well, so partly I think that's the, the artifice of the storytelling, right? Cause we just had, right, right. yeah, but also, you know, the cynic in me viewed that as the, you know, like American history from what, from what has been published versus what's hidden. But American history has shown in multiple occasions, two things. One, that the CIA has spent a lot of time and energy into setting other powers up to do the, to do the dirty work, right? And mm-hmm. two, the CIA has frequently fucked up the operations, or at least seem oh, to have fucked up the operations. No, their their performance in uh, the opposite of what their intended outcome was is unparalleled. Right. I read an anecdote. When I was still in college, I was doing a master's. I was working on a double major, and I was doing a master's in history, and I was very interested in American history, right? turn of the century American history. And so I was reading about, um, reading about and writing a paper on the series of fuck-ups that the CIA performed in other countries where they underestimated the, the effort necessary to move the pieces around the board, leading to bigger problems. Uh-huh. Even understanding the conceit that I was working from sources that were, you know, in and of themselves unreliable because when it comes to intelligence services and especially in that era of, of record keeping, who the fuck knows what's real, right? But working from primary and secondary sources that I could find, limited primary, primarily secondary sources, right? Reading about this stuff, primarily focused on Iran and then also, um, you know, other theaters, but one of the stories that really captured my imagination and I, and I used it in my paper was 
um, something I read about one of the blunders when they were attempting to sow dissent in Guatemala. And stop me if you've heard, well, stop me listeners if you've heard this before, you can't. Well, I've heard this before, but I think it's a very good anecdote for everybody to know. They're flying around in these little prop planes, American-made style, right? Like little little, little prop planes. Oh, and they're oh, dropping oh, oh. Packets. wait, 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 wait. So, sorry. Everybody needs to go see that Tom Cruise movie that's on this very topic. Yeah. That just, uh, oh, yeah. It is so good. But anyway, I go I saved on. it for my return flight, by the way. I saw it and I was like, ooh, that's going to be my return. It is okay. so good. Yeah, I can't wait. But anyway, so there was a sequence that was described. It was actually documented in debriefing reports and it was in it's now in public record that they there was a there's a series of runs where they were they were dropping um packets of leaflets right so they would drop these leaflets over small villages and stuff that are telling them that their government is corrupt and they should rise up against their government oppressors right so they're just dropping all this stuff out this really opening the door and tipping the plane and dropping the stuff out open the rubber band or the twine and then release the leaflets and in one case, the guy lost control, like he slipped or whatever, and he ended up dropping a grenade out of the plane. So it bounced off the wing and fell down into the village below and blew up. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this was the most symbolic reference to CIA operations in countries that they didn't think were worthy of spending any money on. You know, you, move, you push a little and you make a big, a big wave, right? So pretty much every country they've been involved with. Exactly. But I mean, symbolically, it was amazing to me. Absolutely amazing to me. So, okay. Uh, coming, back, coming back to Atomic Blonde, though, um, and coming back to the casting, there's two things. One, I used to, uh, I used to watch everything with the, the veneer of looking for this, that guy's, right? Like in the Law & Order era of TV, which became the Law & Order and CSI once that kind of got going. But there was that whole network of actors character actors who would bounce around from show to show and then action movies and then come back into tv and they were that guy like Chan- was- like Chan Tatum. <laughs> no and so <laughs> there was there was enough of this that there was someone and then there was a drinking game for a while that i was playing with with uh, some friends out of new york that were also law and order fans if you know if you caught an actor that was in another one and you could identify which other's episode or other show they were in you take a drink kind of thing and eventually someone even wrote a book about it, which I saw that, you know, these, these character actors that bounced around, right? Well, in the modern era, I see things in terms of thy guys <laughs> or thine guys <laughs> with actors who have been in, in uh, Game of Thrones that are in other stuff, right? So of course they pop up in every production that's filmed in Europe because a lot of them were local character actors, right? But this movie, I was, my head was spinning because on the one hand I had, <laughs> I had Toby Jones, which I still, <laughs> <laughs> primarily with uh, Captain America, right, as Arnim Zola. Oh, yeah. And then I had James Faulkner as C, who who has played a very prominent role in the background of a major character in Game of Thrones, as you know. Right. But, but so I'm going like, to say Toby Jones. So, wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Toby Jones, to me, will always be remembered as the poor scientist in... Uh, oh... What what's the movie that just came out? First Avengers. Um, no. Um, uh, oh my gosh. Um, is it the one where Jason Momoa is wearing pink tinged uh, 
like no, but that's all, that's also a very interesting Keanu Reeves tie-in, right? Yeah, sure. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, no, it's the one. Chris about said that was the, good. The, by the, way. The, the the it is really good. The engineered human, um, who's a super spy that has, uh, I mean the. Just let me stop. Go, clearly, go on. You, Continue. Clearly, you're referring to his role in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes. There you go. That's the one. <laughs> but no, hold on. Morgan. You you're talking about Morgan. Morgan. Yes. yes. Oh, I I love that movie. Sorry. I did too. No one saw it but us, actually. Yeah. Sorry. No one saw that movie but us. There's my non secretary for the night, everyone. I loved it. Thank you. Well, but so anyway, yeah. Between Toby Jones and James Faulkner. I was just dying in all those interview. I wanted more interview time, first of all, because I like those kinds of scenes, because <laughs> I wanted those two guys. Right. So how much time as an actor has Toby Jones spent in mock-ups of interview rooms, either <laughs> being on one side of the desk or the other? I think that would be a very interesting character tell, right? Somewhere out there, someone on Twitter has compiled them, though, for sure. But I, and, 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 and what preponderance of evidence is it that is he a really a good guy or really a bad guy at heart? Yeah. So, yeah, is Arnim yeah. Zola a good <laughs> AI or bad AI? Yeah. Um, also, uh, I have not seen it, and I'm, I will not see it, but every time I stumble across Bill Skarsgård, I love him. And he played Merkel, right? He was the fixer. Okay, so you, you do really need to see it. I'm sorry. You no. do really need no, to see I it. No, I don't. You do. The, the memes, watch the, 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 the Dark Tower. So watch the Bad Taste of the Dark Tower out of your mind. Um, it, Carrie Ann and I both agree, uh, is phenomenal. It's probably really? the best, yeah, it's probably the best adaptation beyond Shawshank what? of a book. Yes, absolutely. What? No, yeah. I, I didn't get the impression that it wasn't a good movie. I just, I don't watch horror movies usually. No, dude, it is so good. Oh my gosh. And I've, and I've listened to two different podcasts that talked at length about the differences between the book, the first version and this version enough that I feel like I've seen it. No, no, but you, you have to experience it. Did you, and, and uh, you know, Tim Curry as Pennywise, okay, yeah. of course, is going to go down uh, as historic. But Skarsgård owns Pennywise in a way very different than Curry did. And the fact that they broke it up into the child section and the adult section as the way right. they approached the complexity of that book was brilliant. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just going to have to say, I know you don't like horror movies. I, however, yeah, love I love horror movies. I just don't know if I can get around the memes, which were so amazing off that movie. Oh, putting yeah, but, people in the putting different people in the sewer grade and all that <laughs> stuff it just cracked me up so much, man. I loved it. Uh, I also I, read, it, it was, there was another movie that I came into the theater and we saw it on the theater that this is going to be an absolute colossal Charlie Fox trot. Like it was just going to be awful, right? Yeah. Like, all right, because I my overall opinion, even with taking John Boy out of the equation of the original It, um, it was a disaster. Then the contemporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. awful, right? Um, the remake came like the answer to the unasked question. Right. I was blown away by how good It was. Like, it was probably the movie that exceeded my expectations the most in the past 12 months. I, in a way, I feel like it was a little bit undermined by Stranger Things having happened first, right? Because it, but, but, but without it, there would be no Stranger Things. That's the yeah. no, no. What are you talking about? Stranger Things season one came out before it. No, oh, you I'm mean original. I'm talking about in the cultural ethos and development oh, sure, of the sure. genre. 
right? Sure, sure. But I mean, imagine imagine a world, imagine a world where Stranger Things season one did not occur and it came first. And it would have been, I think it would have exploded in a way, I mean, even more than it did. I mean, it was very popular when it came out. But. It was, it was, it's a top R-rated horror movie of all time. Yeah, okay. All right. In the box office, right? So... Um, I read and heard in podcasts about the fact that the Stephen King book had an unsettling orgy component to it. Is that true? It did. It did. And they sidestepped it very well. Otherwise, the other thing is two or three people, casual, like friends, acquaintances, sent me notes after that movie came out, screaming about how the girl in the film looked like my daughter Zoe grown up a little bit. No, she that as a dead ringer, and Carrie Ann and I both agree with that. We walked out of the theater and we commented on that fact as well. I find that fascinating. All right, uh, but anyway, where were we? Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? Okay, so I will have to watch it, and then we'll talk about it. I know Chris yeah. will have thoughts because he does an entire other podcast about horror films, but yeah. But going I'm, back to the, uh, what? Going back to Atomic Blonde? Yeah, Can we Bill Skarsgård. Subtle, but really good. Yeah. He's a character, well, I should say he's an actor that made that character, I kept feeling like I was going to be betrayed by him. And he was absolutely up front. <laughs> what he yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, he, was, he actually was what he seemed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, Del, just like Delphine. Yeah. So I, I, just, a, just a little shout out to the Skarsgård family. Whatever you're doing on the breeding techniques and the child rearing, gross. I know uh, you should you should publish a book on how to raise very talented folks. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> uh, I'm having some cognitive dissonance because uh, as we're recording, I'm on the 25th floor during a thunderstorm. Uh-huh. And there are ropes down in front of the windows because the window cleaning crew are attempting to clean the side of the building. Uh, and it's, it's windy as hell and raining. And so, the, and it's like, like, it's like just like, I don't know, out, it's out of control, right? It's like going all the way to one side and all the way back to the other side, all right. the way to one side. And when I went down earlier to eat, um, I discovered they're actually working. How do you, how do you work when you're like in, well, first of all, why are you cleaning windows in a thunderstorm? But also, how do you stay alive on window washing equipment during wind like this? So we're not, we're not going to go into a charming anecdote about uh, elevator safety and construction safety over where you are in the world right now. That's right. It's okay. not just that. It's, human yeah. it's the sanctity of human yeah. life in right. densely yeah. populated third world countries. Yes, you're right. Yeah, there are, there's an ex- a certain fungibility to yeah. humanity that uh, doesn't really meet our moral code. So I, my advice to you is just shut the curtains. Nope, can't. And, uh, what? Can't. If I shut the Why? curtains, if I shut the curtains, I slip into a deep, dark place. I need the light. I need the light to remind me, remind me of everything that I have to look forward to in my life. I, I you I know, shut I, those I, curtains. I, I, all... I gotta say, I gotta say, out of the many years, nine decades that I've known you. That is perhaps the most disturbing thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I probably should shut the curtain. I, I plan to shut the... Actually, I just like looking at cityscapes. <laughs> okay. But you, know, but you know what? Honestly, I, my plan is to shut the curtains as soon as a little head pops up in the window. <laughs> it's been two days <laughs> and they haven't gotten this far. for help. 
Thank you for helping calling, you know, the officials like, nope, sorry, not my job. (laughs) Not my monkeys. Yeah. (coughs) Okay, so my ennui aside. I'm on the the 25th floor, not the 35th floor, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, so, dude, notes. I have notes about Atomic Blonde. I absolutely love that they started with New Order, dude. Of course. And, and again, recontextualizing the music, right? Right. And then, of course, following up with um, Major Tom. All the way, German and version. Action. German version of Major Tom, and and, 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 and ninety nine love balloons, right? So yeah, but the the Major Tom part was significant for me because they did what I absolutely love, and they don't do it too often, and they often fuck it up. But I absolutely love when the soundtrack that you're listening to turns out to be music in the scene, right? Yes. I love that you're hearing all the music, and then you get into the the car, and it's on the radio as they're fighting. Right. right, that's the oh, I that, love it. it defines the context in a way that's much more relatable because oh, you can emulate it. it. You can emulate it in your own life, right? Yeah, I love really it. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. And I really like well choreographed, tight, tight space, like tight quarters fighting melee combat. So this was another really great one. This reminds me yeah. of the beginning of uh, Preacher season one. It's that same sort yes. of well, less. She was obviously less skilled, but it was the same. That same sort of thing. I loved watching how much they can do in the short. In a small space, like Captain America in the Winter Soldier, right in the elevator. Well, oh. and well, wait, but beyond the elevator, but also, let's the, do a shout out to Daredevil and Give Captain America. But but with the stairs oh, going yeah. down and up the building, right? That right. was just so. Now I've got a whole new appreciation for like stairwells being the new octagon. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> it's like it's, it's been it's been demonstrated to me over and over again how <laughs> precarious and risky. Going yeah. up and down stairwells are. Tell you it's, what, uh, pull, pull a fire alarm and you'll get the octagon you're asking for. <laughs> when I uh, when I did this thing for the uh, um, American Lung Association a couple years ago, it was a fundraiser. Speaking of where, octagons, yeah, well, it was a it was a fundraiser where Sorry. you where we ran up the B of A building right in the fire stairs, and so you raise money and then you do the thing. And so I was right behind the, I was, we slipped up into like second position behind the, the firefighters who were the first people to do it. And they were in full, I probably told you this before, but they were in like full fire gear, axes, helmets, tank, oxygen tanks and everything. And they ran the full height of the building in front of us. Now, granted they had oxygen to work from, which was great, but it was, it was a real reminder of what they have to train with to do but the other thing that the other thing that this whole thing reminded me was that the fire stairs are very risky they are very 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 risky um what i was just saying indeed oh yeah just we'd start i got really uh exhausted around 4 30 and I noticed that the guy that I was running with in front of me started tripping, going uphill, right? It was like stumbling and tripping. And eventually, you know, he actually did eventually fall over a couple of times. And it really, it really reminded me about the, the scenario where there's some an event in a building and people are flooding the fire stairs to try to get out and how likely it is that people are going to be falling all over themselves. Right? Oh, especially smoke-filled and no light. Yeah. Uh, smoke-filled and no light and just in, in, yeah. And then... Tie that to things I've seen in other countries, let's say, where I find mm-hmm. slabs of granite and ropes and rebar and various other things just littered in the fire stairs. 
Yeah, it's very disturbing. I would suggest it is the octagon you should avoid. Also, you should avoid buildings that are on fire. Yes, and that's why I always carry around my personal parachute. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, what else? So, so Atomic Blonde um, has a lot in common with Daredevil Season 1 in the sense that it was the same things I liked in both projects. I liked the idea that there were consequences to the combat, right? She was bruised and brutalized and beat up. Um, and, and, and it had a lasting effect to the rest of the movie. Yeah. Which from a continuity perspective, not a yeah. lot of films do. Yeah, wounds that were wounds that were sustained continued to play characters in that movie. Um, at the same time, it was really fascinating that she had that affectation that she would uh, take those ice baths, that she was like trying to like freeze the emotion out of herself or whatever. Um, I found that was really compelling because I can tell you I would not take an ice bath <laughs> even with a high fever. I've done one at 104 fever, and it was it still was excruciating. No, no, that, but there are, that is an archetype that is used a lot in movies and others that it is a way to shock the system back to alignment. Yeah. Right? And uh, it would be, be a really interesting study to take a look at every time an ice bath or the ice modality was used outside of Underworld. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right, let's just discount that and throw yeah. it in the trash heap of history. The um, <laughs> so, but but that is a it is an interesting use of things that there's some cleansing or resetting of either perspective, physicality, or mentality that occurs with that process. Sure, it's very symbolic, absolutely, and also it's a really cinemat from a cinematography standpoint, it's really neat. The imagery of take putting the camera under the water, right. And yeah. you see all the ice floating around at the top, and then she's descending below that, and you see her face. Uh, and, and, and kudos, and kudos, Leach and Charlize for not using that as a as an easy cop out to show something else. Yeah, because right? it's more about, it's more about what this means for the character and the progression of the plot and her life as opposed to some, you know, something else. So that was that was. Yeah, agreed. And then also. You know, it has it has double layer of it has a double layer metaphor, right? It's that purging and resetting, but also mm -hmm. it's the you know, at what point are you, at what point are you dead? And you know, as a from from your soul's perspective, the things that you're doing and the lack of humanity that you have that you have to have to do this kind of work, you know, are you know, are you really alive? Even do you have emotion? And yeah, it was particularly mm -hmm. compelling given that her entire thread in this movie was that she had. You know, she obviously had a very layered and complicated relationship professionally with everything that was happening, but also uh -huh. she was brought in with a with a chip on her shoulder because her lover had died, and well, not died, like got murdered. Well, yeah, and then and then led into having that relationship with uh, Sophia Patella, which I found yeah. um, was a extremely effectively realized in the subtlety in which they did it. Even right. if you set aside the hot sex that you weren't, at least I wasn't expecting to happen. Um, more importantly, it was just like the post-coital, just kind of laying around the bed talking. Yeah. You didn't get the sense, you got the sense that she was becoming invested despite herself, which was effective. But, but so you just touched upon a really important theme for this entire movie is that she gets committed to things that she shouldn't, like her former lover yeah right who got killed and then delphine and then to spyglass yeah 
where where Spyglass, she's trying to uh, redeem herself or right. some form of redemption of her life by doing right. that. Right, kicking the door, kicking that door, the or the crushed uh, dashboard when he was when he was drowning. Yeah. scene. Oh, that that was that was intense. It was a really haunting scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love from a setting standpoint talking about the way that the movie was was dressed and photographed um the apartments that she was staying the apartment she was staying actually every apartment that we saw her well, every, every minimal awesome neon tinged apartment and then his fucking like lab of like, like yeah. full of junk <laughs> with like doordash jeans everywhere you know but it was so it was so perfect for like a Manhunter Miami Vice uh, Bond oh, yeah. intersection, right? And it really was the edifice versus the avarice. Uh, it was really well done. And also, it showed it, they each of them were defining their characters in a way, right? Like he was absolutely yeah. fully invested in his side business as a fixer. It wasn't just everybody. He was he was as cluttered as his environment, right? Yeah. Whereas she was so, as was trying to operate as pure as her environment was, which I thought was really But So I wouldn't say pure. I would use the word Spartan. Yeah, okay. Spartan's a good word. Right. So everybody was a product of their environment. Right. Which, or, and, and or their environments were a product of themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it just, every, every scene was so well done and choreographed from the aesthetic and the content of the scene within the visual frame the actions within that visual frame and then the music that fed into it yeah, and the, and the choreography that, that made it live. It was, I am really looking forward to Deadpool too. <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, the imagery of her, particularly when she was wearing the outfit where she had a coat, uh, her blonde hair, and then she was wearing um, nylons that had the pattern of thigh highs on them, but they weren't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? That whole thing mm-hmm. that she was wearing. Everything about that, that whole sequence, I just kept going, my head kept going back to, this is a combat Pris, right? <laughs> yes. But to me, to me, it's it was like another, Pris. yeah, but, but it was a great 80s thing, like, what if Amy Mann was yeah. uh, an assassin? Yeah. Right? Which is always a courtesy of mine, like, that, that's got to say. Like, that I would be great. Going back in my head to, you know, here's what happens if Pris was the combat model and not the pleasure model. <laughs> Totally. But James McAvoy's Rucker Howard just falls apart. That doesn't hold. Yeah. So <laughs> that's true. So here's a thing for you about music. Okay. Um, in the cafe, Cafe Und, um, when she walks in, it's playing Commissar, right? Mm-hmm. Which is thematically appropriate given who she's meeting with and everything. And then as she gets to the bar and she starts talking with people, it transitions to, you know, a kiss is just a kiss, all that. So yeah. what it made me wonder was, was that a transitional, was that a symbolic music change to suggest her getting into character or whatever? Or was it that she bring, because the way I interpret it is that she brings her soundtrack with her, right? Like she came into this really, this, this like a little pleasant, pleasant musical environment. Everything was just having their cocktails, whatever. And she, yeah. and she was pure punk rock as she walked in. I don't know. It's a really interesting choice to do that, right? Like it actually did this yeah. like transition from one to the other. So to me, to me, I, and I could be totally off on this. To me, it was more about defining the context of every frame shot. 
right, in every scene, right? So it was Dirk Commissar after the fire, and then, as they, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought it was Cities in the Dust from Susie and the Banshees, right? Mm -hmm. Is that up on the progression? Uh, so, yeah, ultimately it was, yeah. Right, so, so to me, it was just a framing mechanism. Like, here she is in, in this scene playing this role, and then here she is playing a different role. Yeah, you're right. And, right? So to me, character, right? Totally music as a character. Yeah. Or, or something as important as the physicality of the stage element, right? Yeah, yeah. Another, and the costumes, right? Another auditory um, detail that really helped uh, sort of tell the story beyond the story was every time she would go to uh, the watchmaker, yeah, was that his his little his little shop was a, a, a cacophony of watch ticks, right? Which mm -hmm. to me was really effective. The imagery of the of the imagery of using the watch works to hide information and all that stuff is a very a very nice um, metaphor for the complexity of of stealth surveillance and hiding secret things and other things and you know like it really it it lended itself to that very easily but the sound of the ticking mm -hmm. speaks to tension, right? Speaks and ratcheting of tension. And right. ratcheting of tension. Yes. And, and, and also a connotation that things are going to end. Mm -hmm. Right? That this is building to a point that you cannot pull back from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have the same note in, in my uh, notes for Atomic Lawn as I do for some of the episodes of Android's Dream, which I am up to date on and you're not. Um, no. Nodi is unprepared for hot scissoring. <laughs> I was really not prepared for the really intensely uh, hot uh, lesbian scene with her and Sophia Batella. Man, that that surprised me, particularly because I was watching it on a plane on Singapore Air, which is as other other shows I've watched on Singapore Air's network have been edited for content, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that that got through because there was no nudity really surprised me because it was really uncomfortable. Like, you know, well, about it was someone like serving me wine and giving me, you know, careful, whatever, right. <laughs> Hello. It just, it just shows you about the creeping hypocrisy of moral relativism. Yeah. That's what it showed. That's what it showed. Yeah. It yeah. showed other things too. I enjoyed the yeah. scene. But um, also, uh, I made a note here that goes back to our discussion about the previous previous Leitch film um, using crowds for cover. How that was yes, it was it was frequently, um, you know, a factor in the scenes in this movie. But, but crowds for cover, and also as a representative of the victimization of a society at large. Right? So yeah. the, the, like the parade, the parade is a perfect example of that, yeah. especially with the Stasi influence on, on everything from above, which is right. also another apt metaphor. It so was. it was, it was, uh, it was a way of attaching it to these broader events as opposed to just people you don't really like taking each other out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I also wrote here that I, um, that I was really interested in, uh, the narrative structure of an interview because it allowed us to accept an unreliable narrator, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a clever, it's been used time and time again, but I was very aware this time that I could not trust what she said, what either of the other two said in the room. And that in the course of telling the story that 
we're watching that is, a, is some version of what she's telling them, but it could be more than what she's telling them. None or less. Or less. Or less. Uh, <clears throat> is guaranteed to be the right, the correct story, right? So I thought that right. was, so, I like that from a storytelling standpoint. Absolutely. But the interview room is a great embodiment of where reality shifts, warps, and subverts to right. meet different agendas. Well, think about, right? I mean, it's become a cultural uh, sort of footnote now. It's a joke. But think about how important it was, the scene in uh, Basic Instinct, where, she, where Sharon Stone did her infamous leg cross. Or Usual Suspects. What? Usual yeah, Suspects. Yeah, which, 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 which is the best interview scene as a movie ever. I'll flip you. I'll flip you for real. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, in Basic Instincts, though, that it, it, as, a, as a modern noir story, mm-hmm. that was extremely powerful as a single subtle move that completely defined that she had just taken control. Yes. And that the narrative had now become what she wanted it to be and not what the detectives wanted it to be. That was fascinating. And, yeah, and the same thing with both Blade Runners. The same mm-hmm. thing with L.A. Detective. Yep. Uh, every, every Law & Order episode ever, uh, this whole, it's kind of an interesting parallel to, well, I don't know, I may be going way off the rails here, but mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, going in and confessing, the confessional. Right. Right, and, and how you define your reality going in and coming out of that process. It's, it's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, especially when what you're saying may not be true and the reason for the confession may not be true and right. the records of what you said may not be true. But, 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 the, but the, the cover you're trying to get and the absolution you're trying to get still remains the same. Yep. Even though you're telling lies to try and get to the state of grace. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Well, going back to the thing we were talking about with how much, how, how daredevil and wonderful it was, I just wrote here, them stairwell fights. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> really great. It, it, in fact, in, in a way, it's even more impressive in this film. Uh, daredevil in the modern, in the modern era of, of these kinds of stories, of course, you know, set the bench, benchmark for it with all of his, first it was the fighting his way down the corridor and exhausting himself. And then in, this, in the season two, it was going down a stairwell. But yes. in case, it was a similar deal. She's going down the, the, the central stair. She's also underpowered as a, as a woman compared to the, the theoretical uh, greater strength of those assailants, but she's using momentum against and, them. And, against she's trying to, and she's trying to protect a vulnerable asset at the same time. Exactly. And she was ex- becoming exhausted and injured as she went. So that right. was the, one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie was that she, by the time she got through that whole safe house scene, she was completely beat to shit and yep. she was fighting like the whole thing where she was, she and the other guy were just like, like on the floor, just like, you know, like, you know, like trying to find a gun. Yeah. Like that was but, 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 and, and then it makes it even that more dramatic when he gets rubbed out in such a anticlimactic fashion. Like mm-hmm. she did all of this sacrifice <clears throat> to try and make this happen. And then in, the blink of an eyelash, it's all moot. Yeah. Right? And, the, and then that sense of loss and everything else, that emotional attachment, just with Delphine, a different type of physical process to establish an emotional attachment. Yeah. And, and her former lover, that was the origin of the entire thing. Yeah, you're that right. There is that, that, that kind of correlation uh, between feeling and action that is pretty compelling. Yeah, I agree. There was, um, there was a really great scene in that... Um, in that 
one sequence where they're coming in the door. It was that, it was that, it was that scene. But mm-hmm. there's the shot where she, posi- position, ugh, she positions herself to the side of the door. Classic. Mm-hmm. Gun up, looking to the side. And then the guy comes through the door. And then, there's a, and then they start shooting whatever. And then mm-hmm. as, as it happens, you realize that she's actually in the next room. And there's two different mirrors. She's looking in one mirror at a reflection in another mirror, which has the reflection of the door. So yeah. the camera has set it up that she's on right on the side of the door and he's bursting in right next to her, which you are willing to accept because it's a typical thing in these movies, right? But then you find that she's one room back and then is shooting at him from, from one room away. What a cool thing. I'm super, super into this guy's work because... And so just imagine what he's going to be able to do with Deadpool. <laughs> oh, oh, my, my God. <laughs> right? Yes. Oh my God! I yeah. cannot wait. You know how we had this this third act reveal that she had uh, pieced together this this audio to frame Percival, right? I got through the first two acts of the movie, interested in the fact that she had all this audio equipment laying around that she had managed to get <laughs> bought and put down, and that she was listening to it, and then Sylvie Patel's character character was listening to hers and everyone was listening to their thing and it was no, it, i thought it everybody's was, wired everybody's wired well sure and then they show you show how she has the you know we see her tape up the the device you know the the, the auditory device in her bra and all this but it was all the image all of that imagery was feeding the the surveillance 80s stuff it was the yeah. war spy stuff that everyone's recording everything i know well, and, 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 and even now yeah, right, well, sure, right. but, but but I never once looked at it at, that there's anything going to be used with that. When she they showed a lot of sequences of her listening and Botella listening to the recordings that they made, and at the time I interpreted it as oh she's listening she's she's you know she's going to emulate an accent or she's listening for some detail or whatever else or she's recapturing in her mind the sequence of events to prepare herself for the next thing. And then to find out in the third act that she was actually at that time editing up <laughs> a dummy tape was really well. Yeah. So again, alter, altering reality to meet your agenda, just like she did in the interview room. Yes. Just like yes. right, yeah. right. So everything's everything's mutable. Nothing yeah. is absolute. And I fucking love Berlin. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and then the last thing I noted was that um, there was a there was a single detail that felt like it was the encapsulation of her entire character. And that was this really cool lighter that she used throughout the interrogation. Remember that lighter? She would flick it and then this little bar would come up and would have this little thing. And that thing would have the fuel pushed onto it and it burst. And so it was this cold, highly designed, stylish thing that was, dangerous right like like everything about it to me suddenly became like you know in a sense you would think that if you were going to make an image of her and an image of the story that it would be this like teal colored plastic thing right but something about that just felt like it was totally appropriate for her to be using. well something of utility turned to a malevolent purpose yeah totally totally i don't know anything else on atomic blonde that you can think of that was a pretty amazing film though i loved it no, it was one of the first films that I watched, and as soon as I walked out the theater, I bought the album. Oh, oh yeah, totally. I have to do that. I have to do that. You know what um, soundtrack I've been listening to a lot? I've been doing, when I go on these trips, all I do is write the whole time. Just write, write, write. Anytime I'm back at the hotel. 
trying to work on my uh, my publishing stuff, and I need soundtracks and you know stuff without lyrics because I can't write if someone's singing. Right, I have to have just this background stuff, but I want it to be urgent, and interesting, and kind of feel feel like the vibe of what I'm writing. Right, and uh, so you're a big fan of Vangelis, then? Totally. Well, sometimes yes, I am. But so um, I, I frequently play Dunkirk soundtrack, which. Did you see the movie? I don't know. Oh no, we, I thought we saw the movie together. The um, no, we Dunkirk. saw Blade Runner together. I haven't seen Dunkirk. Okay, no, I've seen Dunkirk. The every time I see that movie, I just think of Tom Hardy and yet another mask muddling through. I will come get you. Warrant warning. I haven't seen it yet. I was originally actually, even though I love the filmmaker, I was originally not going to see the movie because I was so one hundred percent at capacity for harrowing war movies. But then. Um, but then I knew I was, it was inevitable. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but no, no, you, you should, you should, but, but it's just, it's a testament to Tom Hardy yeah. and his ability to act through every physical barrier put in his way. I'll tell you like, what. You know, like, literally, I expect some movie in the future to put him in a wet paper bag yeah. just so he can act his way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Smiley pies. <laughs> so uh, put a pin in, in Dunkirk because I know we're going to be talking a lot about time and narrative structure as we, when I finally see that. But, but the soundtrack to Dunkirk is amazing. Going back to the ticking, the ticking watches in the watch room, the, entire, the soundtrack of that film is variations on ticking time, ticking down to a final event. But, 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 but so is Interstellar. So is Inception. Yes. yes. So everybody knows Dark what he's time. doing. Like, like, so Nolan knows exactly what he's doing with every element of every of his movie. And that's what I admire the most about him. Well, um, it's, it's, Zimmer and, it's Zimmer and Nolan working together and knowing exactly what needs to happen. Yes. So they are like the better version of Abbott and Costello, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> I don't know, man. That bullet, man. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I mean, I, damn you, Iron Man. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, right. uh, but, but anyway, the, the Dunkirk is, Dunkirk is uh, Inception during World War II. I, <laughs> listen, I know, I, I need to do it. But so, the, but what, my, what I was leading to was that I, uh, on a whim, I was like, I got Amazon Music, subscription so i was kind of going through and i was thinking of other soundtracks to movies that i thought would work and, and i wasn't sure and then i stumbled back into uh the soundtrack to the arrival and exa- as i remember oh, i even yeah. wrote it down when i was watching it on the plane the first time i saw it on the plane i wrote down soundtrack gotta find soundtrack and i lost track of that but it's absolutely amazing you yes, feel it's so right I, there and i'll tell you nothing can be better on a morning commute then listening to the arrival and then 2049 back to back. <laughs> and, and, and you start the day out at the arrival and you come back with 2049. <laughs> and, and you're either going to jump off a bridge or you're going to go hug your family and go buy a lottery ticket. It's, a, it's one of the, it's the dichotomy of the human existence. But when we were recording our seven hour treatise to Blade Runner, I remember asking you after, I think it was in the session after we had seen the movie and we were still severely uh sleep deprived and i said i said i bought the soundtrack immediately and i was driving i drove home to it after seeing the movie and it was surreal i saw the wolf wolf Yote and various other things and you i remember you saying that the last possible thing you could deal with is the blade runner soundtrack in in your commute because you would just basically just throw your car off of, <laughs> throw your car off the bridge 
and but yet it is a recurring yet, it's a recurring soundtrack 80% of my commutes to date have been on that soundtrack yeah, I was going to say and, and 20% of your commutes involved hurtling off the bridge fortunately the probability <laughs> steered you towards ergo no no ergo my personal parachute comment earlier yeah the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right well that was a comment one I cannot I cannot get enough of that movie and now I've decided that Leach now that you've pointed out his his uh the the beginning of his filmography i've started to look at his you know everything that he's done and i'm realizing it's like it's kind of like reminds me of how i discovered grunge back in the day when i was like i love this and i love that and i love this and i'm like wait what yeah no he he yeah. could be my next he could be my next nolan right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. uh yeah. and apparently he's got a background in stunt coordination did you know that he does he's very physical and the aesthetic that he brings to it is very visual oriented and it's really nice so he yeah. actually came up through the system as a stuntman and stunt coordinator so yeah yeah and it, and there's, there's got to be some drama about why he didn't get a directing credit on wick two but yeah yeah that is interesting yeah he yeah right he's got uncredited and on wick and then he's got the no good deed short that he did for deadpool i remember yeah, that. yeah. Oh, interesting yeah um, anyway, so, uh, hey, I have a question for you before, uh, before the train is off the tracks. Do you, uh, do you have anything for your planned plundering segment for this session? Well, I, I, I have a couple, right. Yes. I have a couple, right. So, uh, I will say I really recommend all the massive viewers that listen to this to go check out Bright, which is a What's Netflix. A viewer? <clears throat> what? What's a massive viewer? Listener to this podcast. Oh. I'm saying. To, to all the the hundreds of millions that listen to this podcast, go check out go check out Bright. Really, it is. Yeah, it is really a good film. What? what? So my wife is over here throwing tricks at me, telling people to watch. Dude, I love that movie. It was a it was a great really? combination of eldritch and sci fi, which doesn't really happen. Well, okay, okay. Now let's hold on a second. Now let's decompress that a bit. So, um, as an old school cyberpunk reader and player i was a little bit annoyed when i was very annoyed when uh the from the from the makers of dungeons and dragons they, they came out with the shadow run uh, role-playing game elves <laughs> and dwarves and trolls in the modern cyberpunk environment and i was like come on you know get your get your get your elves and dwarves out of my cyberpunk right so when this product <laughs> came out i was like of course it's it's, it's shadow run right now that said um, one thing that I've read a lot, I've read a lot about how it's a problematic production and I'm willing to accept that my mileage will vary from the, the bandwagon of negative, of negative comments about the thing. But the, the, what I read that I thought would be a thing that would bother me was that it was a extremely in your face allegory for inner city racial tension. You just, you yes. know, African-American. And or, no, orcs, orcs as orcs. the new African-Americans, right? And everybody wants to feel better by picking on somebody that they deem lower than themselves, right? Yeah. But that's the human condition, right? And so... Well, yeah. Or, or, one, or one of the biggest flaws, one of the biggest flaws of the human condition, right? But in District 9, it was the alien, something yeah. that had come in and invaded us, whereas in Bright, it was just an alternative version of reality. You know, I understand that, but the, what, we differ on this point because, you know, you, you throw back at it that, well, okay, science fiction is just 
you know, the human condition recontextualized so that we can see it with fresh eyes. Of course, and that's I, the whole point. My problem, my problem with District 9 was it was so literally an apartheid allegory that I kept thinking like, okay, yeah, it's just, it's apartheid. Like it was, there was not, it wasn't cloaked enough. And my sense from reading, but, 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 people, but, like Bright was like that. But so I, I am fine with embracing the social narrative and the importance of describing current events in an abstracted environment to have the discussion about the thing that you're going through. But does it do that though? Does it, it actually? Does. I, I, does I think it District actually, 9 did. I think I District 9 did. Well, I, I don't know if Bright did, but I know District 9 did just because of the conversation about how mm -hmm. obvious it was. I see. Right? Okay. Right? Well, and, and, so, and, okay. So, and, so, and so to me, for like the, the Asimovs and the Wells and the, the whole point of science fiction to me is to put humanity in a different context yeah. <clears throat> so you, you don't you don't feel judged. Well, I understand, but, but 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 yet you can still see the need for change. I think that the reason right? why and, was, and, and and like Star Trek, the original episode, the original series, it was a groundbreaker and a a social hot button, not because of the quality of the show, but because of the social issues it raised. Well, okay, but the reason the criticisms that have been, or even if you strip away the bandwagoning against Bright, the main criticism about the interpretation of the orcs as African-Americans was that it used all of the same slang as is used against African-Americans in our culture today. They just no, I'd say not true. I, no, I'd say not true. Not true at all. No? Like the, the, the blood sacrifice and kind of the, the archetype of religion from orcs that if you... If, okay, so now I'm boxing myself in a very unenviable corner. If you actually paid attention to the RPGs and the original Dungeons and Dragons and the orc culture... Like those those parallels were there, but it wasn't paralleled with African American culture. Like the the blooding and everything else, that was always done or part of Gygax's vision of what orcs were. Um, You're so it, it was uh, yeah. You 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 just summoned the you just summoned the the grand mystical letter G. So you you have my attention. Yes. So I will watch well, it and we'll talk about that next time for sure. I will say there was yeah, one, yeah. there was one pin in Bright that 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 I noted at some point that I realized was meant that I was going to see it no matter what. And, and that is that when I was doing research, trying to figure out who this enigmatic actress was that played the doomed, uh, rebel pilot, yeah. in, uh, yeah. last Jedi that was trans sister. Yeah. I, could know, I was like, who is this person? She's really compelling. And I was like, not cyber stalking at all. And I discovered that she she had a character in Bright, and I was like, "Well, I guess I'll have to watch that." And she's and she's very compelling in it, as is uh, um, uh, the. Come on now, uh, Numi Rapace. Numi Rapace. She she's actually great in Bright as well. So interesting. Yeah. What about Ike Barinholtz? Uh, Take him or leave Our him. Show. What? Yes. Margaret Cho is phenomenal at it. She's just, she's a whole, she's, a, she's like, she's kind of embraced herself like Andrew Dice Clay, that when she gets into a movie, she's just going to be whatever we expect her to be in the most glorified expansion of herself. Yeah. Uh, um, and yeah, so she's exactly what you expect Margaret Cho to be. Isn't Hiro in here as well? From Hiro? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
All right. Now, <coughs> but, 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 I can't get to it in, uh, in Indonesia. I can't get my... Yeah, yeah but dude, you just have to accept for what it is. And for what it is, it is much better than Sharknado. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this is really... And, 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 I was, and I, that is literally the... I watching it. I wasn't. But now I'm... Now yeah. I'm okay, I'll watch it. I'll give it... The but but Sharknado is literally the bar that I established for these types of endeavors. Well, that's not great. That's that's a that's a political bar. That's not the same. No, 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 no. Because you're you're always pleasantly surprised when things go beyond expectations. So if you set the bar low, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. More yeah. things, more things surprise you. All right. So so you're recommending Bright. Uh, do you have anything in your planned plundering list that you're immediately looking forward to beyond the Black Panther and Avengers and everything? Like you know, more immediate stuff that you're about to consume. So I would. Um, well, we already talked about this, but Shape of Water. Yes, is, you just saw I, it. What, what I just you saw that. Yeah, What's it's your... probably my favorite. It's probably my favorite Guillermo film ever. Okay, all right, right. So you're gonna definitely um, that for sure. Yeah, and, and and that's taking into account Devil's Backbone and his uh, little sidebar roles in the the Hobbit. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but to me, to me, it was really a contest between Hellboy, Devil's Backbone. And this film, and this film wins hand down. And I will say it's primarily because of Michael Shannon, who I keep coming back to as one of the most underappreciated actors of our time. For sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> everything he does is better because he's in it. And Shape of Water is another manifestation of that. He is phenomenal. So everybody who hasn't seen it should go see it because of him. Um, uh, so, so wait, so you, so your, your shortlist on Guillermo del Toro is Devil's Backbone, mm-hmm. Hellboy 1, and mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. but not, uh, oh, because Pan's Labyrinth didn't direct. Mm-hmm. Did he direct it or just write it? He, I think he just wrote it. And, 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 and regardless of that, Pan's no, he Labyrinth. Directed it. he directed well, it. So, but regardless, it fell into the trope that so many Guillermo films fall in and the same archetype and visualization, the same things. I mean, you take a look at Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy right. and like the side characters and the special effects and the costumes are nearly identical. Oh, totally identical. Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth right. was like <clears throat> off of the same stuff he was doing. Yeah, right. And Devil's Backbone to me is still seminal and very relevant in that it had a different context, Spain, World War II, uh, monastery different challenges running a pan-dimensional intersection. The, um, the use of CGI in Devil's Backbone is still, I think, what everybody should look to as a compelling use of it because it didn't dominate, it enabled. I haven't seen that movie. You know. Yeah, Devil's Backbone is phenomenal. Huh. Uh, and then, but still, Shape of Water, because of the plot-driven nature of it, the character-driven nature of it, and Michael Shannon, my favorite my favorite Guillermo movie ever. Well, this is sort of a nice, um, this is a nice dovetail because given the mute, the nature of a mute character in that film, mm-hmm. uh, I was going to say my, my short list right now is mute on uh, Hulu. Mm-hmm. Hulu, Hulu or Netflix? Hulu. Hulu. Netflix. I don't know. Whatever. Hulu. Whichever it is, mute by uh, Duncan Jones. That's, that's in my short list because, Oh, 
And then also, finally, he released a, a, a trailer for it, a full trailer. And I just like, I can't even believe how amazing. How is it that the entirety of everything leading up to that production and how awesome it's going to be? How is it we got this far without finding out that uh, Paul Rudd was going to be in it? I, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Come on. What, 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 what movie are you talking about? Are you kidding? No, tell me. But You're dead to me. You're no, what? How can we what? even be having this conversation anymore? But tell me. <sighs> what movie? All right. It's a movie called Mute. Oh, no, no. Okay, so no, I thought you were talking about a different movie. Yes, I know about Mute. Okay. I'm with you there. Oh, I'm with you there. All the way up until, you're still dead to me. You're semi-dead to me. All the way up until the most recent, the tr full trailer that they released, I had no idea that Paul Rudd was in the movie in the first place nor Justin Theroux, mm -hmm. but more specifically that Paul Rudd was playing a guy named Cactus Bill, for fuck's sake. Like, what is even happening in that? It's going to be so amazing. <laughs> and Alexander Skarsgård, Skarsgård and Justin Theroux. And yeah. Justin Theroux. Yeah. Skarsgård playing mute the entire movie and then having Paul Rudd filling all that void space is just going to be Good. absolutely insane. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm fully there with you on mute. Sorry. So and so, and and Sam Rockwell is getting into this yeah, as well. Yeah, and so then the other thing is uh, the other thing on my radar is uh, in in the United States maybe a hit's just come out uh, is uh, the adaptation of Altered Carbon. Yes. So I really like Joel Kinnaman. I really like Cyberpunk. I'm ashamed to admit that Altered Carbon's been on my shelf for 20 years and I've never read it. Uh, what? I know you're dead to me. I know. I know. This is like when you found out that I was like not that into uh, uh, Stevenson's. Uh, uh, what's his? What's Snow his crash? Huh? Yeah, Snow Crash. When I was like, yeah, he delivers pizzas, and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. So we're not going to be having. We're not going to have a good conversation on this topic. I'm just saying. So we just need no, to move no. on. I'll, my plan is. So no, no, but I want your help with this. The reason I bring this up is I need your help because we talked recently about the challenge of watching really good adaptations and how they influence how you think about the the, the literature how we yes. how i started with expanse as a as a film first and then started reading and then the imagery of the show bleeds into the reading and that's what i see for the most part so well up, up to a certain point up to a certain point because i think the just like game of thrones you're gonna have a wide demarcation between the show and the written. No, no, no. I know. I'm saying about like the the imagery and the care and the actors and the casting. Okay. So like I'm halfway through yeah, yeah. rising right now, which I know you've finished. So I understand. Mm -hmm. Um I understand I, you know I, it, I'm so far beyond what the show was doing. I get that. But I still see Holden as the actor from the show. I still see Alex as the actor from the show and so on. Right, um, but, but, which is unfortunately just a different version of Jon Snow in the future. Yeah, that's true. But, anyway. <laughs> but, um, but uh, although interesting, my, my 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 mental image of Naomi is not the actress from the series. Who oh, is oh no, not at all, not at all. I, I agree with you there, one hundred percent. And also the Martian. Um, uh, uh, oh damn, you pull it. Yeah, Bob. yeah. That 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 character is completely different. You know, but well. interestingly, though, Bobby's a really tough nut. Like, 
she is she is uh, indicative of many uh, fictional characters that I read. I have this haze of familiarity with her. I see her in my mind in a lot of ways. But yeah, I, you know who it is, right? You know who it is, right? Yeah. You know who it is? Who? Hillary Swank. You see Hillary Swank when you read that. <laughs> when you read that Bobby Badass fighter mentality, right? I see I see Hillary Swank every time. That's that's, that's just it. <laughs> Well, certainly there's no Hollywood analog for Bobby in the books, for sure. And I actually really like the casting and how they've taken the approach that they did with the, the, the TV series. However, Doug, the, the Bobby Thomas Jane, Thomas Jane, Thomas Jane, like, come on. Well, I, the, well, that defined that character in my mind, yes, for sure. But Bobby in yes. my mind yeah. is, a, is, as they described, a giant. I mean, she's huge. Polynesian yes. woman, like just really, like... Popping seams everywhere, and there's that just does not exist in Hollywood. Period. So we we actually we need to do a whole thing on Expanse because we I'm tired of waiting for Chris, and we have seven no nine total pieces of literature to discuss. Right, and they've it, it, only gone through one and a half. I I know, I know. Uh, yeah, I'm, right, I'm. So so we should set up a weekend yeah. Friday through Sunday where <laughs> we have a lot of where we have a lot of stimulants. <laughs> right, and and it's an alcohol-free zone unless it's intravenously administered, and um, we just go through the whole thing. I think I'm entirely on board, with the exception of the alcohol-free zone and the entire week, yeah. because that's never going to happen. However, no, intravenous ethanol, okay, not oral. So I can different. I can at least be on board for a nine a nine a nine p.m. to four a.m. marathon, where well, like, I think I. I think we need to do 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. I think we just need to do one of those benders. I think that. <laughs> I was just imagining what hot mess, like our our interpretation of like book five or book six would be after like 18, you know, gins yeah. or whatever. Yeah, no, the, the underwritten rule is that we turn it off at 2 a.m. Yeah. And no matter what, we never turn it back on. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So, um, uh, there was a there was actually a scene in Kingsman too that I really appreciated. They were um, they were drinking to come to sort of in honor of all of their instantly dead cast members, and they were drinking Kingsman right, and then like drinking, drinking, and then they yeah, yeah, yeah. Drink, then they have two drinks, and then they're all the way down to the end of the bottle. And uh, Mark Strong, who again seals this movie, he was like, "Well, I think we should take a drink to Scotland," and he's like, "Ah, I think you should stop." And I and I laughed myself because I realized that that's like the narrative. Longer, <laughs> that's our longer recording sessions, which I'm yes. that much more in tune with now that I'm editing the recordings and 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 publishing the podcast. It's as I'm as I'm listening to all the raw audio, I can see the cliff, and then we go right over the. <laughs> No, uh, you never know when you cross the line until you look back. Yeah, you look back and you see, and you see two lines. <laughs> right. So, yeah, like, and, you, and, you, and, you, and you aim for the middle. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm super interested in uh, in in seeing Hulu and Alter Carbon and and uh, yep. those are like most immediately on my radar. Although so, we have uh, Jessica Jones season two is coming out within a month as well, which I'm very looking forward to. I will also say that I'm very interested in seeing Annihilation. Oh, yes. Having read those, having read those three books, it looks like they're taking a different approach to it, which I find compelling aesthetically. We'll have to see if it translates to the narrative. Um, we talked about the fact, I haven't read the books, but um, we've talked about that production, and 
I read uh, earlier this week. It was really frustrating. Did you read this stuff about how the, mm-hmm. the, the, whoever it was that owns the rights to it um, folded and basically just said, you know what? We're just going to do international Netflix distribution because people are too stupid. Like what? But, but, but it's the same thing that the Hobbit went through. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, and that's why Guillermo ultimately uh, checked out of that process and went to do fucking Pacific Rim and, yeah, oh, we won't talk about that again. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, so finance matters, right? So it's so the two, but uh, but uh, but I'm really happy about Annihilation, and and oh, I will also say, and Dark Mirror. If folks haven't checked that series out, they should also check it out. It is uh, really, really, really well done. It's been going on for like five years. I had no idea, uh, but I was blown away by it. Um, are you watching both the British and aren't there two different versions of it or is it one? I, if there are two different versions of it, I am not aware of it. I'm just Maybe. watching the one that is filmed in like everybody speaks English. So I'm assuming it's <laughs> BBC related. So. <laughs> oh man. Oh jeez. Do you remember, do you remember that line <laughs> I talked about? There was, oh, two versions. Okay. <laughs> a British version and an English version, an American version. And you said, I just watched the one with English in it. All right. Listen. Yes. My point because is. we don't speak English in America. That's maybe just the, it was always the same BBC production and it finally got American distribution. I don't know. But it's been going on for a long time. It's only been it, it, two seasons. It is. And, and, and we, we binge watched it when, over the holiday break. And it is phenomenal. Uh, okay. So. Well. Um, in, in parody to that, uh, you definitely need to see Android Dreams on Amazon. You know I don't particularly like anthologies because I always want stories to have them to be fleshed out and grow and everything. But I have to say that um, Android Dreams is a good example of using a modest budget to tell amazingly uh, realized stories. In each of these one-hour episodes, they've created a different you know, some different version of a, of a, of a sci-fi setting. Some of them are very near future and some of them are far future. And there are times when you definitely get the sense that you're like, well, okay, that was, they could have used more money to do this, but the interpretation in, in how they translated the, the, the books or the short stories and the choices that were made, the actors that are involved, um, there's going to be a lot of parallels to, to Black Mirror for sure. But you have so, to get I mean, on, on Amazon and CDs because they're really, really good. So, uh, but are, are they based on Asimov or Philip K. Dick, or there's like kind of a no, no, it's all Philip K. Dick short stories. So wait, so when you say do Android Dreams, so I automatically go to Blade Runner. So did they try to no, no, uh, so, acquire and reinterpret Blade Runner? No, 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 no. So it's all based on Philip K. Dick short stories, right? Like do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the pregenitor for Blade Runner. That's yeah, a long form though. Right, but did they try to appropriate it, or all? They're all they're all <coughs> after his all the short stuff. Okay, so, uh, only about half of which so far that I've actually read. Um, but uh, the, the casting choices have been very interesting, and some of the subtlety and the design work has been really. Interesting. I think you'll like it. I think when you've seen it, what we should do is also get Mike Rowe on the podcast because as you yeah, were, I know he's really good. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah. Well, and also. He, he spent years working on that program to build that Philip K. Dick um, automaton that would be interviewed mm-hmm. and bond with, you know, res, you know, it can res, like responses that related to things they, that, that, that the author felt. And, you know, that, that whole experiment that he worked with is 
If nothing else, that gives him, you know, three percent more authority in his opinions about the show. No. Also. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Also, I'm really looking forward to finishing. Well, I'm not looking forward to finishing uh, Persephone's Rising because I don't want it to end. Although it feels really gloomy, <laughs> it feels gloomy. Um, also, uh, it, 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 because because it is what. The future is not. I'm speaking to an evil robot. Well, um, as as the internet fails us, the other the other thing that I have next for me is um, it's staring at me from the couch over there. It's it's uh, Reemdy from Stevenson, which I know you're anxious for me to read. So that's next for me. Yes, you need to read it. Yeah. All right. I still can't believe I still can't believe you don't like Snowcrash. I didn't say I didn't like it. I'm saying that my memory of Snow Crash is like my wife's memory of any movie. It's the first 11 minutes of the book, right? I need to read and then I'll love it. Okay. All right. Well, so, okay, so this has been a great session. I appreciate your time. It's been super fun. I appreciate your time as well. Like, I, I hope window washers are safe and your curtains are drawn. And, nope. uh Neither of those two. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen any tension on those ropes in a while. That's not a good sign. Well, they may have cut Fisher bait, you know? No, you know, uh, directly down, if I look down out the window, I see the pool for the, for the, <laughs> and it's going to be a, like, it's the movie thing. There's going to be two bodies in the pool and one body out of the pool. Right. What time is it now? And then the trick is, it's 1237 AM on Sunday, February 3rd. Oh, that's early. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, it, this is practically a concise session for us. It is. It, it didn't drag on beyond four hours, which is kind of <laughs> depressing. Drag is never the word you use for this podcast, my friend. I, I'm sorry. was not propelled the beyond cup, four hours. The cup overfloweth with, with liquid gold, yeah. just like in Kingsman 2. Oh, don't go there, man, because you and I have very different opinions of that. You don't know what my opinion is on that movie. The, the, the mere presence of Channing Tatum uh, realigns the center of gravity between the suck and unsuck ratio that oh. it's really precarious to cross. You and, I are gonna precarious. Have, you and I are going to have words. I have come to a realization that there, that guy's a secret weapon. Yes, I think we're agreed on that. The purpose of the secret weapon, I think we may disagree on. Oh. <laughs> Next time we'll do nine hours of so we'll do uh, three or four hours of Black Panther and then nine yeah. hours of Expanse plus yes. three hours of It plus... And, 50, and 15 minutes of Channing. <laughs> yes. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> because cause, cause, uh, cause out of that retrospective, that's what he deserved. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just going to put forward prosecution evidence number one, Gambit, that upcoming... Thing that's headed our way <laughs> that that I'm pretty sure will be very interesting. I don't think it's ever going to get made. I don't think it's oh, ever no, if, it's going to get made. It's going to get made. If, 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 if Brie can beat Captain Marvel and they can pull that off, they're going to make Channing Tatum gambit. It's going to happen. Hey, check this out. Have you ever come home and you, know, you came in the door and you looked at your house keys, your car keys, and you're like, I, I don't know what to do with these keys. I don't know where to put them. If I put them on the table, they might get lost. If I throw them on the ground, the cat might steal them. 
I don't know what to do. Should I put them back in the car? Guess what? There's a solution. You need to go to a sweet, sweet website called deeplydapper.com. This may or may not be the site of our dear friend Chris of the Robot Kraken podcast, but let me tell you what they have. Some sweet key hooks available for sale. Featuring a variety of interesting fandoms, you put the hook on your wall, you put the keys on the hook, and then when guests come over, they'll stare at it when they first come in the house. You know, they'll just stare at it entranced while, you know, holding their coats in their hands, and they'll be confused. Like, how could you have found such a cool, interesting, yet utilitarian object for your home, specifically with regards to where you put your keys? So think about that. Think about how much you need a key hook that you never knew you did before. Go to deeplydapper.com. Pick from one of the many selections there. And while you're at it, you may find that you need some reasonable means of carrying a portable amount of liquor or fluids. And guess what? Sweet flasks are available. You may also find that you need some reading material or some sweet art or various other things. Maybe even a curious and interesting soap with which to clean your own self. Guess what? deeplydapper.com has them all. So go to the site today, go spend all your money. That was also an ad. It's over. Back to it. Bye. Hey dude. So yeah. one other thing since we're recording, comma, one other thing that we didn't talk about was Captain Marvel and all the new stuff that's come out on that project. Can I tell you how much I'm anxiously awaiting the, fin- the completion of this thing? I am. And since now it's an official record, I will also go on record saying that I'm also looking forward to that. And <laughs> we had an offline conversation that I was like, we can't waste that. All right. And, 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 and despite my recommendation that we keep it offline, you brought it online. So now I did the, uh, so it's always, it's always online. This is the no, okay. surveillance state, bro. It's okay. It's okay. The, uh, I'm really looking forward to the expansion of the Marvel universe in that sector because it's going to be the second gen guardians. Right, and so they're really being deliberate and methodical about how they're approaching it. And Brie Larson is just phenomenal. Oh, she's great. So yeah. I thought. So my thinking, reading about stuff that's happening with Infinity War, and then seeing all the images of them uh, photographing everybody in earlier times in the timeline, you know, like earlier outfits and all this stuff, was that Infinity War was going to lead to between Infinity War and the next film. It's either leading to time travel or multiverse or manipulation of events like that however i thought that the fact that captain marvel was set in the 90s and was going to involve scrolls and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. that we were going to see time shunting in captain marvel so my sense was that possibly the imagery that we first got recently where she's in a kree uniform that's green and green and gray or green and black green and white and black whatever it is that that is imagery from prior to Thanos. Like maybe that's imagery that's actually being cut for one of the other films. And in fact, then we're going to go back and it's going to be a re it's going to trigger a, a, a continuity shift, which is going to be the Captain Marvel movie, which is how mm-hmm. Captain Marvel exists in the nineties, but we've never heard of her in the MCU in MCU today. Now mm-hmm. that was my take on it, but uh, our buddy uh, Blair suggested something else, which was that he pointed out how badly this fits her and suggested that she's wearing Captain Marvel's actual suit. A male, a male Kree soldier's suit. 
before ah, it that's a very that that's an interesting take that's a very interesting take good on Blair. I could be wrong, but it was interesting yeah but so, but i also think that uh things to keep in mind yes here moving into infinity war is that we have a lot of op- we have a lot of open-ended stuff that has never been addressed that they can use to their advantage in whatever plot direction they want to take like what right scroll creep yes never really manifest never really developed but could be the absolute wild card in it the yeah. metaverse how do they have access the importance to of yeah right and the metaverse the the quantum element of the continuum and the infinity stones very important and yeah. then they have this role of characters that could embody or not embody uh certain elements of the, the pantheon that exists in the marvel canon that may be completely subverted in the movies right and last but not least i think there's a very important significance into the timeline that we're on that black panther is coming up before infinity war and ant-man and Wasp are following yeah okay right because i think the last infinity stone is going to be revealed in black panther and i think the cleanup after infinity war or the con- the correction not the cleanup the correction from infinity war could be in ant-man and wasp That's and so there there the, there's a lot of things that if you're completely linear in your thinking it's going to be a one-off and and done but marvel has shown that things matter and things are connected like Thor and Guardians, right? Right. So, um, uh, it, Panther's <laughs> got to have the soul gem, right? Exactly. Especially with the purple and yeah. the, the cars and reinventing the costumes and the power supply and everything else. That I, I'm, I hope they don't do this, but I think they will. They'll say that the reason why Wakanda has such an edge on the rest of humanity is because they found out a way to harness the power of that Infinity Stone um, I hope they don't do that, but I think they will. Uh, I thought um, that, I kind of right? figured it would go the direction of that the the sacred the sacred duty of the kings of Wakanda have always been to safeguard and hide a soul gem that had been planted there millennia ago or whatever, you know, like that. Right, and and, and that they and, <clears throat> right, and that they found how to exploit and manipulate yeah, as as opposed to Red Skull and the Nazis that gave rise to Captain America and everything on that arc, right? Um, but they found a way to m- make it a theme for positive outcomes, right? That could be. Whereas, um, whereas, yes, whereas yes, Guardians, was, Guardians were like the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was saying that the, the big thing with Wakanda is it's the source of vibranium. So it would suggest that, the vib- that vibranium is a, is a non-terrestrial metal that would be connected in some way to the existence of the gem. Right, so maybe the soul gem was encased in vibranium that came down in a meteor or a right. spaceship that landed in Wakanda. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I know from is the, from the immortals, from the immortals, right, yeah. or the celestials, one of the two. All I know is that um, uh, Brie Larson. I just cannot fucking wait until we see her in a legit costume. Like, I just that's another example of all I got to do. Just take the current comic costume, get rid of the helmet, mm-hmm. call it a day. That's all they got to do. Yep. Amazing. But yeah, she's so a I very think, I, actress. I think it's going to be really neat. Yeah. The rest of the cast on that film looks, it's a gangbuster cast. 
Well, because, well, I mean, because now it's just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the wake these things draw. Yeah. Right. That, that, I mean, if you can get involved, it was like a Star Trek back in the eighties to me, like when he had Christian Slater being like the engineering intern and others, <laughs> like, like now, now you have this, now you have this wake that people want to be involved with just like uh, Daniel Craig and Star what? Wars and others. What's right. What's her name from sex in the city? It's Sabo. <laughs> Sabo. <laughs> Kim Cattrall. Well, actually, it, this I, I think the current trend for um, star power in Marvel films has been the inverse of what was happening in the '90s with superhero movies, where like in the Batman, in the in the decline of Batman movies, they were just throwing names at things, and it didn't, <sighs> and it was it just was a disaster, right? Whereas with the, the, with the Marvel stuff, it doesn't feel like stunt work, like the the, the actors that are brought on. It's roles that are playing, not that you just have the celebrity of the actor in that role, which is which is very specific. So what Marvel did that DC was never able to pull off, in my humble estimation, is that and and Marvel. This is why I like Marvel better than DC anyway. Is that Marvel is an embodiment of humanity, whereas DC is what humanity should be, uh-huh. and there's a, and there's a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Marvel, within that context, everybody can relate to Peter Parker. Everybody can relate to Wolverine. Everybody can relate to, well, maybe not Doctor Strange or whatever, but everybody can relate to Chris Pratt, uh. right? <laughs> so um, that that they are just humans thrust into extraordinary situations that do what every human should do. Whereas in the DC universe, it's, we have to be saved. Humanity has to be saved by people who are better than us. Yeah. Right. In in, in rough terms, you can, you can always find things that defy that. Right. Yeah. But, but in general terms, that's where it's at. Yeah. I mean, and and to give, to give DC some credit and the modern DC some credit, they have had some pretty um, high wattage casting that was not, that they didn't make a big deal about. I mean, when you think about it, Man of Steel had Kevin Costner as. as yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no. Uh, yeah, in the nineties, that would have been a huge deal. They would have made it all about him, the way Donner's Superman made a big deal about having Brandon. And and actually, I have a I have a much better opinion of Man of Steel than most. So, uh, out of all the yeah. DC canon, Man of Steel and Wonder Woman are my favorites. So, mm-hmm. well, outside of the Dark Knight, you know. Yeah, I'm with you there. The, the Nolan interface, right? So, but it's got a rub. He's so wrong to see they paid like what thirty million dollars to Ryan Reynolds for Green Lantern, and 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 his most successful movie arc yet to date is still Deadpool, and certainly will be Deadpool too. And and the the lampooning of Green Lantern in Deadpool. <laughs> It, and I mean, Deadpool it was made for ninety-seven dollars. So that's I know, like, yeah. <laughs> and it made nine hundred and seventy million dollars. It's just, <laughs> oh my god, it's just brilliant. And like in every way, Marvel brings the right weapon to the street fight, and DC brings whatever they were told to bring. <laughs> <laughs> but Brie Larson, I'll say, I think she's probably going to go down with uh, Hugh Jackman and. Uh, yeah. And Robert Downey Jr. as perfect for that role. Right? So DC, you would say DC brings the 
the yardstick with all the scissors taped to it, and Marvel yes. brings the hand grenade. Yeah, DC really brings fast. <laughs> yeah, now DC brings the knife to the gunfight. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I want to go watch Anchorman. You know, uh, I, I want to close on one thing, which is I just rewatched uh, Ragnarok on the plane the second time, like I said mm. before. Um, I just every time I can't wrap my head around the fact that Doctor Strange has an American accent. I mean, it's got a mutated English making an American accent, but when I read Doctor Strange growing up, he had a British accent. Really? I didn't, I didn't have that at all. Really? No? Yeah, no. So, no. so I'm, I guess I'm, maybe I'm the anomaly here because I just keep wanting it to be, why would he just have his normal accent and call it a day? You're trying to do the Doctor Who, Doctor Strange crossover thing. No, right? but, yeah. How dare you? Doctor Who. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, and thank God, Doctor Who's a woman now in the next series, which I'm yeah. really happy for. Um, paid the same. What? Paid the same. Yes. I, it's sad that that's a news item, but it is. Well, and just a little sidebar, completely out of the blue. Shout out to Jessica Chastain. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, yeah. uh, she went to war for salary equality across all, all racial divides and gender divides. And uh, thank you, Jessica. Good job. The um, you know she listens to this podcast. Well, I hope so. The uh, <laughs> the uh, why did Doctor Strange have a British accent for you? Well, I don't know. It just it's like a thing that just happened, and I you know to me it just felt right for that character. And and odd, oddly enough, I wonder if more people. I should ask more people about this because maybe I'm the only one. When I would read it, kid, I, it was like it was like it was like Manhattan Bronx all the way. No. Yeah. Yes. Wrongs. I mean, I know no. where the Sanctum Sanctorum is, but I always, I always read him as this that that undefined, you know, that undefined, uh, you know, Western European accent. That's you know, it's some sort of British, but it's not exactly right, and it's very like not like Atlantic, like Madonna, but you know what I mean. The you know, I just thought that he had that demeanor and that whole affect. Um. Nope. And maybe it's because he's got, you know, he's got Wong there and everything else. But something, something about it felt very colonial. I'm glad to use that word because I was going to say that, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's what I get out of Doctor Strange. When I was and, and, up, and wait, colonial British. Didn't we start this conversation with the whole thing about mm-hmm. how the colonial accent doesn't impart intelligence or denote it? I, I totally and did. yet, and yet here you are falling no. into it. Fuck, dude, I was like seven. I was <laughs> All I'm saying is that I was watching Thor, Thor 3 and I was watching an Australian doing a British accent and a British actor doing a, a, an, an ambiguous American accent. And I was really, conf- it just my brain was doing these like little loops. Um, but that's what's been so wonderful about a lot of the Marvel projects is how many... Uh, or just projects in general that we've been watching as American American productions and, and as Americans watching them, how amazing it is that the European actors, particularly the British actors and Australian actors, I guess that's not European, let's put it a different way, actors <laughs> from every other country except America can do other accents, but Americans can't do any other accent. When they do, it's really obvious, right? Yes. There are not a lot of Americans who can who can affect another accent very well. 
Yes. Look at Preacher. When you watch Preacher, everyone in that song has a different accent than they're playing. And oftentimes they're playing different other accents than what you're used to. Yes, I agree. And so the, the carry on pointed out the biggest mind fuck of me for the past like six months, King yes. Arthur, but the dude from Sons of Anarchy, yeah. right? Charlie Hunman. Hunman. Right? Yeah, yeah. So when he, when, when he was in King Arthur and started talking in British accent, I'm like, oh my God, that is so bad. Seeing an American Arthur giving a British accent. And it turns out he's fucking British. <laughs> like, <laughs> in that sense, it was just, why did the steroids mutated his vocal cords? That was the problem. No, but it was so, like, I'm so ignorant of what I'm talking about. It's uh, refreshing. No, but that's, I mean, it is a testament to these different actors that if you're not really clear about their country of origin, um, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing. That's a good thing. Because it, right, right. it means that it didn't spill over into what they were doing. Right, like Clive Owen actually being from South Dakota. What? No, I'm lying. So anyway. <laughs> I watched the, I, I stepped into this whole series of Vanity Fair videos the other night of uh, actors from different places doing slang, doing instruction on the slang of that place. Like Reese Witherspoon was doing Southern slang and, and, uh, and I didn't watch it, but uh Wahlberg was doing Boston slang. Anyway, I watched Gerard Butler okay, doing. Okay, wait, wait. Wahlberg teaching anybody anything is I, the height of irony. But anyway, come on. Makes a good burger, though. So anyway, it was Gerard. His brothers make a, his brothers make a good burger. His brothers make a good burger. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So it was Gerard Butler doing Scottish slang. <laughs> and I had been avoiding watching this. I had it in my queue for a while because the problem I have with Gerard Butler is he has this like weird hamburger mouth situation that's been happening over the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> when he was in 300 maybe it was because he was so emaciated but it, it wasn't as obvious but as as time has grown maybe as he's had more meat on his body but he has this like he's got cotton balls in his mouth like he has this weird hamburger oh, mouth. It, could, it, it could just be a slow moving stroke that could be it is definitely has something to it so anyway so he's doing his like you know his his breeze through scottish slang which is amazing it's amazing video i put it on robot dash kraken.com which is an excellent entertainment news site for those who haven't read it anyway so in the video he's going through all this this impenetrable scottish slang with his impenetrable natural scottish accent plus his hamburger mouth and it's like something out of the arrival right uh, whether it's the alex garland arrival or whether it's the charlie sheen movie <laughs> so, wait, wait. but circular reasoning in scottish language i think that's not gonna fly <laughs> It was really bizarre, though. Anyway, okay. All right. So, give me some haggis. Give me some haggis on a rope. Give me some haggis. Haggis on a rope. So, Captain Marvel's going to be amazing. That's what we. It is. And and I'm really actually so unlike DC. I'm sorry, DC fanboys, girls, whatever. uh, I think Marvel's set up to do this massive transition period with the Infinity Wars that is going to open up things that are going to be even better than what I already consider to be extraordinary accomplishments in one and two. It's just, it's phenomenal. Can you imagine if Marvel pulls off a thing where the movie reboots their universe and they can start telling sort of alternate reality or new reset versions of these characters or tell other random things to the point where those stand on their own just as well as any of these because they've obviously proven that that'll happen with guardians and 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 some of these other projects so 
Can you imagine we're at a point where some some third tier spinoff of Iron Man is as effective as the original Iron Man was? Yeah, it, it, but I would say the the way that they're going to pull that off isn't through that kind of dimensional rift element and resetting of the clock. I think what they're going to do is the more conventional, we're going to kill characters off that then hand off to others. Yeah. Well, I hope they right, do. So I, no, I, I, hope I they think, do. I think, yeah. So I think Iron Man, Captain America, Hulk obviously can't really translate unless they try to do Hulk, She-Hulk, which will be interesting. Well, um, in the comics, there's another Hulk. Actually, there's two. Well, there's too many Hulks in the comics, as is always the case. There's too many of everything. But uh, there's a there's a younger Hulk who's a fully sentient one, uh, played by who's a who's a young guy, a young brilliant sort of designer inventor guy named Amadeus Cho. So he's a young Asian guy who's 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 the current Hulk in the comics. And then uh, there's She Hulk, and then there's mm-hmm. Red Hulk, which is actually Thunderbolt Ross, which is a, an atrocity. And then there's right, a, but that, I mean, the, but but now you're getting into the granularity that's not going to pull off in that yeah. kind of common but vernacular, right? Is, there's a lot of variations on this. Yeah, yeah. Dig this. But, 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 but I think Captain America and Buddy and and write that handoff to go. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think Captain I think America, Iron Man. In the comics, the best the run one of the best runs of Captain America is when he is dead and Bucky took on the the shield. Yeah, Bucky. Yeah, yeah. Just like, just like when Bruce Wayne was dead and Grayson was playing. The role of Batman, amazing. Right, as as a reader, so, like you know, uh, it's a different guy, and they're written. I just right. I just so I just it was really disappointing for me, like in Suicide Squad and Justice League and whatever that they just kind of took the Robin character and used it as a motivation for the angst of Batman. Like I think there could have been a succession planning and everything else that would have been very powerful, and and they just kind of co-opted out and said, okay, we're going to give him an emotional motivation because of the loss associated with a character that we've never met period well um, i still i fully understand why the nolan verse ended and and that he's moved on to other things and and i love what he does but i was entirely on board with a new version of a batman year one with yeah uh you know with 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 uh 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 what's his name the actor yeah the bullet, bullet's getting to me um joseph gordon levitt as the yeah. robin robin future batman like what i love most in all of these the year one stuff where they don't know what they're doing i would have been so on board for a new film where he is doing a thing and it's not batman but it's not robin either you know playing right. with the it, it, different i thought that would be great or just like the origin story of daredevil right yeah. he's just somebody trying to make a difference yeah Daredevil season one with just wearing black tactical pants. Yeah, just as some guy trying to make a difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, okay. Right. So, 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 so. Anyway, what were we saying? The I have no idea. The next generation of so that Marvel will be successful because they can nuance the way of uh, allowing mainstream audiences to accept different people in the roles that they started, which is a, which is a tough. It's a really tough act to follow, but they right. Being character driven, they may be able to pull it off. Well, especially if they have continuity, because it now established a multiplicity of characters that people connect with, obviously with their paybook. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so if they if they can use that as a way to leverage the development of new characters, just like Ant Man, whatever they thought was a disaster, you know, going into it, Doctor Strange, people think, oh, there's going to be the Marvel collapse. Um, but now, now they've got this the really deep bench 
yeah. of of character development and storylines that they can now manifest up well, and, and, and and then expand from. Now, I, I do think there's going to be a point of reckoning, right? Where not everything's going to be a billion dollar megalopolis, but I do think that like Black Panther could be another beachhead. Captain Marvel could be another beachhead. Guardians is another beachhead that I don't think they should ever eliminate. Um, well, but, but there's but Iron, Man, Iron Man and Captain America. They could transition out. Yeah, but there's a there's a thing that has to we have to move away from somehow, which is this idea that every every film has to be better than the film before it, and every film, or rather, every film has to do better. In other words, I I think that. Um, but I don't I don't have that. I, I, I just, I'm just looking for stories that complement each other. Well, yeah. So Marvel have been fairly reasonable about expect modest expectations for side projects versus the big ones and so on. And that's why when something like Deadpool or Guardians does so much better than they think it's going to, then it's just like icing on the cake. It's sort of like how Disney expected Rogue One to do not as well as Force Awakens. Awakens. You know, right. and they were and they were fine with it. And who knows what they have expectations about the other anthology stuff like Solo, but um Oh, we didn't even talk about solo. Like solo, I'm 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 terrified of solo. I think that could be like a cannon breaker, but anyway. Yeah, but they have they put all the egg they put so many eggs into this. It would have been so much easier for them to just kill the project if it wasn't working. The fact that they put they so should, much into it makes me wonder if they're gonna pull it off. <laughs> they should have done Billy D. Williams. They should have done Lando Calrissian. They could, have, <laughs> well, they could have done anything with that and been much better off. Well, you know, he was supposed to be in Last Jedi, right? We talked about that before. I think that that's still yeah, would have been successful. But anyway, but I think, but what I'm saying is, I think that Marvel have to be confident enough. Disney, I guess, have to be confident enough to be able to say we're going to tell stories that are not going to be as um, financially successful, but that will be enriching in in the broader canon of the stories that we're telling. And that's a to be a cynic, it's like they would never do that. Everything has to be the best ever because it's money. But I don't know. I, I feel but, like but, they have room to breathe because studios, did, I, well, studios are set up. Studios are set up to have tentpole films and then smaller films. And the tentpole film feeds the smaller film in terms of balancing out the overall revenue at the end of the year and everything else. And then if the small film does really, really well, as you know, all these films that have happened over these last 20, 30 years, every once in a while, a small film is explosive. Well, then great, that's bonus. But if they weren't expecting it to do that and they had accounted for it with their Pacific Rim or whatever, then it's fine. Well, if they allow that to happen, I think we're okay. If every film has to be amazing, then we're in trouble. But so I'm going to push back a little because I think nope. the opposite is, I think the opposite is true for Marvel, right? I think they sold the value proposition that, more is more. And even if there are losses that occur along the way, the net aggregate of a cultural investment in, a, in an, like a hierarchy is going to pay off. And so even people thought they were crazy when they did Doctor Strange and when they did like Guardians and they were paid, that they were proven right. Guardians was um, the biggest deviation. That was the one that even I was like, there's no way. What, is it? what the hell are they doing? But, but I mean, it's a perfect combination of superheroes and sci-fi. I mean, get the fuck out of here. Perfect. Yeah, but now yeah. we say that because it had style. When it was on paper, it wasn't appealing as a comic book. It wasn't appealing as a, as a, as okay. a, as a breakdown in early discussions about it. It was, right. okay. it was doomed until it wasn't. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to co-opt the conversation by agreeing with you and then pointing out the exceptions. 
Okay. So Cat, Captain America. Yes. Right. You followed that progression in the box office. It was miserable at the beginning and then went yeah. non-linear from the beginning, from the end. Thor, the same thing, miserable at the beginning and then non-linear at the end. Oh. And right. Yeah. Right. And so they've proven themselves as a market performer that I think investors are going to just believe in their system. That's going to enable them to do a lot of things that everybody would think are crazy. Yeah. And, and, and Captain Marvel, I think is going to be one of those. I think Black Panther is going to be another one. Like, are you getting, come on, get out of here. Like a whole African-American uh, cast for a superhero movie. And I think it, it actually stands, I, it has the potential to be probably one of the top performing Marvel movies of all time. I would like to, here's the thing though, I'd be really interested to see how Black Panther does internationally because uh, <clears throat> we may have been late to the game in abolishing slavery, but uh, racism is alive and well the world over. And it'd be really interesting to see if, for example, look at how, you know, like Last Jedi bombed in China, so they pulled it because the Chinese have never been interested in Star Wars. Because the they, they never got exposed to the original canon. They never got exposed to the original canon. Well, that's what I'm, but what I'm saying is... They, it was they never saw film. Star Wars 4, 5, and 6, right? Yeah, but that was a good film that was not even given a chance to breathe because it didn't have the lead-in, so they didn't even bother. Um, other films, Transformers and random other things, did really well overseas, internationally, in places like India and China. Large population markets that are now considered very important to the bottom line that we used to not have to play to. Well, hmm. right. So how are those, how are both of those cultures going to take an all African-American story about an African country with African superheroes? It's gonna be I, think it's gonna, I, I think it's going to defy your expectations. I hope I think so. Gonna, I, think, I think it's going to go through the roof. I hope so. Board. Oh, I think it would be amazing if it did. Yeah. Because it's all it's, the, all it's, the it's, attention it's, about whether it's going to do well has been domestic, you know, about whether, you know, American audiences are ready to accept this story. Um, I, you know, no, I, the big story I, is going to be what happens overseas. I fully expect it to get in the 500 to 600 million range, right? That's a conservative estimate. Well, right? and, and, and the fact that they spent 125, and the fact they spent 125 to make it, right? Yeah. So, well, it's going to do well. The, the question is really going to be I mean, if it, so if it did something like 500 or so, well, it has to get, it, it has to get, it, it has to get like six, seven to really gain some notoriety on the international. Marketplace, right? Yeah. As a recognition. Like Suicide Squad is like globally. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, many films that we describe as being bombs here or even as international bombs, the numbers are staggering. It's just. Well, just like everybody, everybody said Last Jedi was a bomb. They're living on planet Uranus. Well, that's the thing. It's the, right. it's the, it's the um, bandwagoning pushback on it that claimed that it was a bomb when it really wasn't because yeah, it did amazing. <laughs> By any definition, it, everybody forgets that Force Awakens was a singularity right. in, in the Star Wars universe, like, like literally a singularity. Suicide and Squad had a $175 million budget. Who knows what the marketing was, but it, ended, it ended internationally at $745 million. Right. So Black, Black Panther exceeds. So, and everybody forgets what Captain America did in the first iteration. Everybody forgets what Thor did in the first iteration. Like they were two to four hundred million seller dollars, right? Yeah. Um, it, relatively speaking, but now you take a look at Civil War, you take a look at Ragnarok, you take a look at right. I mean, 
so if you take the long view on this, and I guess that's my basic statement here is that Marvel has established themselves that if you take the long view and you're deliberate and you mature these characters with the audience, that the payoff is going to be far beyond the big splash and dash. 220 uh, million excluding marketing for Last Jedi, 600 million in domestic. One point right, and 1.3 billion worldwide. Worldwide, and for 1.3, that's the thing that blows me away. 1.3 internationally without China is absolutely incredible. Yeah, right, that's absolutely incredible. So, so all these people, all these pundits that says that it was a failure are just idiots. Well, they're the right. ones that were saying that the that Apple's doomed because of the iPhone 10 when that makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, like they're pulling $43 billion in cash reserves over from Europe to the United States. Like, oh, they're an absolute disaster. They yeah. have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, sales are like, down on the iPhone, and yet the sales are higher than they ever were. Yeah, the, uh, the, no. yeah this, is a pro- this is a problem when your culture is dominated by a blogosphere. I was interested about Thor. Yeah, that's right. I was interested about Thor, so I just looked that up. So Thor Ragnarok, $180 million budget. Um, and again, I'm not sure if that does it. I don't think that includes marketing. But, it does not. It does not. Yeah, three hundred three hundred million in gross domestic, and then eight hundred million in world gross. Yeah, uh, for a movie that is a is is just a slapstick farce that is sur- sub- subverting everything about the character in a way that it, in a in a tone that does not necessarily play well in other cultures. As astounding. I told you, remember, I saw this here in Indonesia and everyone was just quiet the whole time. Well, but I saw, I saw, I saw Justice League in Mauritius and I was the only one in the theater. Yeah, so, so you also were in Mauritius. You might, might have been the only one in Mauritius. Delicious Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, that's cool. But I'm just saying that overall, I would love to have these so-called pocketbook bows that Disney Studios yeah. is having. Like, oh my gosh, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine that my personal bank account has grown by 150,000%. Like, <laughs> I, am, I am such an unlucky individual in my life. What Here, that, director, here's yeah, some like, petty what, cash. Here's some right. petty cash. Go make a Beta Ray Bill movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know. or, or, or go buy Mauritius. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, go buy Mauritius. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, like literally, have we lost all perspective on things? Have we become that unmoored in yes. the greater context that we're yeah. so driven by the individual perspective that we have no idea of, of where we are in life? That it's just pathetic. Why did you become existential when we're talking about good Marvel movies? Because the existential threat is the one-offs from the fanboys and girls that start nicking and picking and they kind of deflate the balloon. And I think I really want to see this balloon go on and become will, a Zeppelin. I will pre-nitpick and tell you that I'm very disappointed that in Black Panther, Michael B. Jordan is running around with just another version of the Black Panther suit with gold details instead of something radically different. I was really holding out hope that he was going to be wearing a white suit. I mean, he would be some sort and, of white, and you know what? White. As a fan of the original Batman canon, I also found it alarmingly depressing that he didn't have a codpiece. A codpiece. Who says he doesn't have a codpiece? And nipples. And all, uh, George Clooney, right? Come on. 
It was good enough for Clooney. No, but I mean, it's you know, Michael Jordan. It's the one thing. There's been a lot of early, you know, rumblings that like, oh, you know, Black Panther looks like it's having a phase one problem. That it's going to be a whole big setup to the origin of the character where they fight, square off against a senior version of themselves, and then they persevere. And there you go. However, I think those people are fucktards. Well, however, the thing. Okay. What, what's your status in your bullet there, dude? So what my... I'm, I'm, I now have a half bullet bottle right, in me. Half bullet. So um, uh, here's the... Uh, check this out. Yeah, that's an empty bullet. So anyway, I think um, the bigger... Wait, that, was a sound? that was a sound? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was also an existential sound. But I mean, you know, like... It, I would think... <laughs> I would think here's, that's you using your atomic blonde uh, lighter in the house. <laughs> your bur- next to your bourbon bottle. It's not wise. Anyway, I think, I just think it would have been more, I wish that they would have shown more diversity in him battling his nemesis in that movie when you see the other characters and all the costuming and you see the variety of colors and patterns and styles in that world. I was hoping, and you see his original setup when he first. Oh wait, 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 wait! Why, why are you having this conversation when, like, uh, 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 Captain America: Civil War, like uh, all the other superhero canon, <laughs> there was very little diversity, even along gender lines, let alone. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's time to change that. We need to keep moving forward. Yeah. But, but if if there's a Wakanda situation that is Wakanda local, that is oriented around the power struggle and power manipulation in Wakanda, doesn't it make sense that there are very few external influences on it? You know, uh, to, to, uh, to, go, to go 180 degrees on my own uh, statements, I will say that when I do redesigns of, of uh, mainstream characters, I almost always push them into the darks and stuff and mute them. I'm like, <laughs> why? They need tactical gear. Why would, they, why would they be in all these colors? Why would an espionage agent be in purple? You know? So, yeah. Right. I just added. Okay. So I was just trying to find a thing that could maybe temper our 100% enthusiasm towards Black Panther. Maybe. I've no, I, 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 I would celebrate a movie that is rich in context and rich in plot that is really focused on one particular demographic. I think it'd be great. That is non-white. I think it'd be great. Mm. And, and I think it's long overdue. I think, uh, I hope they pull it off. I think it, 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 and from all appearances, it seems like they have. I think it's going to be amazing. Plus, if nothing else, if nothing else, Angela Bassett will wander around and <laughs> a whole new generation who are going to look at her and say, wait a minute, why the fuck was she not Storm again? And then we're going to say, exactly. Well, Wait, wait. So I'm not an either or person. Yes, like there is a world for Halle Berry and Angela Bissett. Like no, it, no. it's okay. No. Um, but Angela how great is it that they won? Oh, come on. Come on. Let's, okay. And, no, and like, no, what? And, no Russell Crowe should, and, Russell, and Russell Crowe should have been Wolverine? Like, no, fucking what? No, Get out of no, here. But I'm saying there's no world in the multiverse where Halle Berry as Storm was the right choice. Angel Bissett I disagree. Choice for Storm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I disagree. I disagree. I think Halle Berry pulled off Storm very well over several films. 
you have you have exposed yourself, sir. You watched Silverfish <laughs> one too many times, and then became convinced that she has merit. No, she does have merit. She's a fine actress. My and favorite, Andrew Bissett as well. My favorite Halle Berry was Kingsman too, because she was fully clothed and wore glasses. <laughs> That's method acting for Halle Berry. Now you, sir, you, sir, have exposed yourself <laughs> as some as some convivial pilgrim masquerading as an avant-garde technocrat. <laughs> the convivial pilgrim. I'm going to write that one down. That's good for the next intro. <laughs> All right. Okay, so uh, Marvel... Oh, wait, no, 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 we're, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Okay. But how great is it that Andy Serkis is like the one who's pointing out to Western society that they've completely underestimated everything about Wakanda. It's just fantastic. I just, Andy Serkis, the actor, or yes, Claw as a character in the film. Oh, like, yeah. In, yeah, right. <clears throat> right. Like, Civil War, like what you guys, he was saying, yeah. Right. You guys have totally fucking missed the boat. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and get ready. Because you're going to get your socks knocked off. Set, setting aside yeah. circus, setting aside that, that circus as a director is getting accolades for his work this year. I just think it must be amazing for him to be in one of these projects as you know, just not as himself, but not under all the prosthetics and everything. He has an entire well, not even prosthetics. His the, the lion's share of his career has been an unsung uh, mocap. Yes. To the point, and he's so yeah. proud of it. He's at a point where people have said, "Oh, he should. There should have be additional, you know, awards categories for meaningless awards for, you know, mocap acting." And he's like, "No, no, no, wait, no, no. But the, the the fact that he has not gotten an Oscar yet is just a highlight of the disconnect between the conventional yeah. approach to understanding and the technology of today." Yeah, but his he is, he is effing he is effing brilliant. But look like, at his humility. His humility. He doesn't. Want, he's like, don't, don't, don't peek behind the curtain. Just enjoy the, enjoy what it is. And if, and if you don't see me behind Caesar, then I've done a good job. Which is what's absolutely astounding about what he does. Which is what every actor and actress should have. Right. Right. So right, that, that I am, I am not me. I am someone else. That's the whole point of acting. Yeah. Well, so it, it's neat to me that he's finally playing a, a role where it's actually Andy Serkis himself, and he even gets to use his own accent which is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's fun for him. Also, they made Claw, which is a ridiculous character, seem rational in a way, which is fun. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think he actually seems more over the top. So we'll have to see. Well, but, you know, <laughs> not purple with the thing on the arm. Radar Dish antenna on his hand. But, um, but he, has, he, hasn't got, he hasn't got exposed to the Soul Stone yet. So he may turn purple yet. Holy shit, dude. Oh, my God. I can't <laughs> Claw, oh, soul, soul gem. If that doesn't happen in Black Panther, I'm going to be really frustrated. You heard it here for. Oh my god, he he like he grabs the soul gem and turns purple. Exactly. He's radar dish antenna hand. It would be. Awesome. And the and the only reason why he doesn't blow up is because of the cyborg interface that he has. Oh my god! Right. So, so because he's a, he was a perfect victim of his artifice. The other unsung actor in terms of this kind of work that I always think about is Doug Jones. And you mentioned Shane Mm. before. His -hmm. second round at the same sort of amphibian character. But um, I'm enjoying him on a regular basis on Star Trek Discovery. Once again, he's under a hell of a lot of prosthetics. 
but unlike most of his other roles, there's a lot of him in it. So you yeah. see more Doug Jones in the in in the alien that he's playing than in other roles he's at, which I think is good. Maybe. And I'm just going to say that I will tactically nuke Star Trek Discovery for the micro drive and everything else. So we have to have another discussion about that. Have you started it? I've watched all of season one. It's um. You, you can understand, though, why at the beginning I had a glimmer of, you know, I, t- I choose to be optimistic. You can see why I was like, oh, there are some risks being taken. This could be interesting. And then, yeah, not fell off a cliff. But, yeah, I'm not giving up on it. But, yeah, I'm now getting as frustrated by the missed opportunity as I was initially interested in the, in the, uh, in the fresh choices that were being made. So, yeah, we should do well, it. I mean, we should do a discovery. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the fact that they came in with a nonlinear curveball about how fungi and mycology can do translational warp configurations and alter human tissue. Uh, yeah, fuck that. So, <laughs> you know, I was fully, no, but I was happy to, I, I don't care, Star Trek, let them do whatever they want. The thing was. Dude, I work, I work with fungi every day. I know. That is. <laughs> and, and space moles, I get it, but I'm just saying that. Or, or space bears. What is it called? It's a. It's a. What's the what's fucking the, disaster? Is what I call no, it. What's the bugaboo <laughs> that they pull to make it, to make their little warp bugaboo? The um. Yeah. Cletus. No, the something bear that the the microscopic little bugaboo that they that they magnify and then they exploit. Yeah. 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 Something bear. Honey bear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, the point is. The point is, I was completely fine with them doing any cockamamie bullshit because none of it ever made sense anyway. If, as long as they were to just no, it, back it, off from it, this it, idea that it's in continuity, uh, and they're still holding it, on to it. But it did. Wormholes make sense from a theoretical physics perspective. At least that the connectivity between the continuum and fungus does not make any fucking sense. So, <laughs> I, I appreciate. Nor nor does hiding. Hiding a, a a massive Klingon in a little human body with all the all the ma- yes. little mannerisms and everything else—none of it makes sense. Yeah. Again, if they just were to establish alternate reality, I would be able to handle it more. Yeah. If it was Star Trek Voyager deviant version, like Event Horizon Star Trek, that would be fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well. Okay. So yeah, I'm not prepared because it's, it's too much. That's too much, dude. We've got we've got far afield of our current <laughs> mission envelope. We did. All and right. another thing, I really like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> our, our our bonus segment is now you know exceeding fifty minutes. All right, so here's here's my thing. Okay, so if <laughs> so if Black Panther does well, no, no, listen, if Black Panther does well, and Ant Man and Wasp does well. And if, if you're forgetting the titan of Infinity War in between, which no, no, no. is probably going to be... about the fringe projects, but yes, okay. What I want to know is this. Right now, tell me a few projects that you would like to see in the Marvel... Excuse me, in the MCU that are, you know, less high-profile adaptations that you would be interested in seeing them do in a Phase 18 or whatever it is. Uh so are we assuming that there's a reconciliation between Sony and Marvel or not? Sure. Ooh, ooh, I have a thought about Venom too, but go ahead. Keep going. 
Right. So Venom with Tom Hardy, right? That that would be very interesting. Uh, I would like to see an X Men Avengers clash. That is definitely the uh, that's the fanboy heat right now, isn't it? How that. Right. So that 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 to me is some of the most compelling stuff. In addition to the Cable X Force extension into the future, right? So the the two parallels I like to see is the mutants versus the superheroes, and then the extension in the future tense from political commentary perspective. So those would be the two things. Okay. I would like. I would also. I'd also like to see a reboot of uh, the Chrissy Pride and Logan mm-hmm. connection, right? Uh, a reboot of the Wolverine Enterprise, which is always precarious because Hugh Jackman, whatever you think about him, <clears throat> whenever I think of Wolverine, I now think of Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yep. Right? Yep. So definitely. a reboot of that Enterprise that's successful would be also great. So there you go. Those are the three. Uh, here's my thing about Venom. They've been talking, they've been insisting this whole time that Sony is going down this absurd path of trying to do Spider-Man related stuff without Spider-Man. And there's nothing about the Venom concept that makes any sense if Spider-Man doesn't exist in the world, right? From the symbol of the spider to the idea of his, of his oh, power, wait. you divorce it so from the symbiote. Venom, Venom does not exist without Spider-Man. Right. That's, and they, I, they still have to agree to that. I, they still insist that it's a standalone thing. And I am 100% certain that we're going to have a Peter Parker or Spider-Man secret insertion into that movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, that said, of all the 90s Venom stuff that was so terrible, where it was this big hulking thing with all the black tendrils everywhere and the giant teeth and all that, you know, Mary Suing, there's a modern version of Venom that is actually pretty cool, which is they putting the symbiont on a, on a special forces guy and it, and it's tactical. He's got arm, he's got like tactical armor and he's, he's like a military guy. And then you've got the venom overlay and he's constantly trying to hold that in. He's trying to hold the venom symbiote side of him in right. doing whatever his operations are that he's supposed to be doing the imagery of that costume. And I will send you some photos. I've been posting them to the uh, red robot Kraken underscore red tentacle Instagram feed for those of you who are interested in Instagram, there was a really great cosplayer who did a, a live action version of this, um, which you're going to have to check out. But um, I, I think that that would be an interesting way of presenting Venom in in a in this film, different from those ni- the '90s version of him. But I still don't imagine that they're going to pull this off without acknowledging Spider Man exists in that world. No, I mean th- th- there's no way. Yeah. Right. I mean, the origin of Venom is Spider-Man. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, no, no. Well, no, no. But even if you take away the symbiote from space, Secret War stuff, the imagery of spiders and all of the stuff about him is Spider-Man. Right. But he is a reflection of Spider-Man. Yeah. The the reason why he had an imprint the way that he did, regardless of origin, right, is right. the interface with Peter Parker. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. So I, I don't know how you can maintain integrity with that approach. The other, the other thing that I find very interesting, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be open to outcome here, is the tent and the bent on the new mutants. Oh, yes? Right? Because they're trying to make it like some horror Freddy Krueger slasher film. Yeah. Right? And, oh. or, or bug, right? Like the fear of the other and xenophobia yeah. and written large and carving yourself up. Um. So I'm fascinated to see where they want to take that. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, um, I mean, I don't know. It could be good. I mean, I, I'm interested in the casting. I think it's, I like the idea that they're trying something different. I mean, I think two of the most exciting things we got last year were Logan and, uh, and Legion, right? And oh, you know, absolutely. Those were properties that went far afield and were absolutely compelling, partially because they were so willing to divorce themselves from mainstream continuity. The challenge is whether uh, those properties can can pull it back into, you know, playing nice with others. I guess. I'll I'll get I'll give that to you for Legion. I think Logan was a Mangold and Jackman movie they always wanted to make. Well, sure, but right? and 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 the, and the power of Patrick Stewart, and and one of his finest roles ever. Yeah. Right. So, the I my question is, what are they going to do with it afterwards? Like, are they going to continue on with X twenty three? Okay, so all right, well, hold on. So let me do a couple of mine. So uh, before but before I give you those, um, the real wild card for me is Dark Phoenix, and I'll tell you why. So you take Singer out of the equation for the X Men stuff, right? And you take Mangold out of the equation as well. Okay, okay. Go on. but for the, I mean, talking about me, you know, the X, actual X Men films. All right, uh, I'm a big fan of First Class. And I know that the follow-up was, was you know, it, it was uneven. But the, but the fact that they were able to throw everything out the window and start over with the original first class under Bond mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and recontextualize a lot of the characters, change the design work, change the time frame, first class. And give, and give Deadpool uh, McAvoy-Stewart comparison for Professor X. <laughs> yeah. It existed so that Deadpool could later make fun of it. No, no. The first class, Colossus, Colossus as well. So yeah. anyway, go. first class remains my favorite X Men film because it was the most refreshing, independent, just just fresh take on X Men. Like I loved, I loved first class, and I loved what they what they accomplished. And what I'm wondering about is first class. First class set up some really great concepts about um, reimagining that problem of us versus the rest of the world and being a semi-militant training ground for mutants and all this other stuff. Yeah. Then Singer was like, well, okay. And he came back. And then that's how it got pulled back into the Singer world of storytelling. And that's what happened over the next two movies. With Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past. And then, um, you know, so I, I don't know. I feel like... And then Apocalypse, which I just want to. Right. So I'll, 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 take, I'll, I'll take it one step further. I would like to see X Men: Days of Future Past as a launching point to a reinvigoration of the campaign, knowing that First Class leads into that. But if you could take New Mutants and Days of Future Past and merge them into a way that is compelling, I think that'd be great. Uh, Apocalypse should just be ignored. So yes, but what I'm but okay, but so what my point though is that. Um, Vaughn, as the director, with Kinberg as producer, Uh had gone a direction that made X-Men fun. Like, like not fun, fun, but like interesting to me, okay? And then he got sucked back into the Singer world. So now Singer's out again. And now we have Dark Phoenix coming that is, which which is all Kinberg. Like, he's directing it and everything. I'm sorry, so... So I'm I'm completely ignorant of that of that development with Dark Phoenix. So I'm sorry if you're operating on a different level than I am. I don't I don't know anything about Dark Phoenix. Oh no kidding. Okay, so Dark Phoenix is all Kinberg. They've released a little bit of imagery, just some concept art and a couple of uh a couple of uh sort of keyframe stuff that they produced for marketing purposes to show it. But it's Oh a, my god, this is coming out in November 
second, 2018. Yeah. So look up Dark Phoenix. Oh, no, I have. This and is, go to this images and see what they've done with Sophie Turner. Now, if it's just for marketing, maybe it just is what it is. But they came out right around the, the new year. They came out with a couple of images that were all like Entertainment Weekly covers or something. And it's two different versions of Sophie Turner bursting into flame. But it's pixelated. Like all the flame is actually fragmenting of her, of her image and forming fire. But it's like blocks. And I, I thought it was amazing looking because it was like, it's not just literal fire. It's like matter falling apart fire. Yeah. So anyway. So wait, they're trying to bring back both versions of Magneto and Xavier? Well, okay. So that's my problem is that still there's, there, there's a lot of stuff that suggests that there, are, there is stuff that's being bled back into it that I don't want to see. But my hope originally with Dark Phoenix was that it was going to continue in the tradition of first class and stay and, and sort of deviate from the old guard. It's the new generation or next generation. Oh, no. Classic. No, no. Yeah, they and, got Sophie Turner, Jessica Chastain, Jennifer Lawrence, Fassbender, Sheridan, James McAvoy, Evan Peters. That uh, the Pixar, my favorite new character of this whole reinvigoration. Yeah. Chastain, whole- Chastain is playing Lalandra from the the Shire, which is amazing. Although right. they mutated her design and they've changed her origin and stuff, but but with the exception of uh, McKellen, I think McKellen might be the only holdover from the old X Men stuff. Because I thought Stewart was done. I thought Stewart was yeah, done. Yeah, Stewart's done. Anyway, the one positive, uh, one additional positive thing I found out oh, is... And by the way, I'm very upset with the Academy for not giving him a nod for Best Supporting Actor this year. I, I agree. I agree. So, so, uh, so a, per- a personal uh, thing about Dark Phoenix that excites me is that they somehow pulled Hans Zimmer out of retirement. He had retired from superhero scores and they somehow pulled him out of it to do the scoring for Dark Phoenix. So what that means is... Wait, wait. They sent Jessica Chastain with an eight ball into his <laughs> like, mansion and they, they struck a deal with the devil and that, there you go. Look, That's how it works. All I'm saying is Dark Phoenix could be all over the map, but Hans Zimmer will pull it together with, that, with his score to make it feel more successful than it really is. So hopefully... If there's any, you know, gape, gaping holes in 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 continuity or or in just in general logic in that film, it'll, that'll all of a sudden be like a dick, 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 you know, like will something happen and we'll be okay, everything will be fine. It'll be a Zimmer okay. movie. I mean, they got Cody Smith, McAfee, Alexander Ship. I mean, this is like it's it's like amazing. it's huge. It supposedly when it starts the uh, the X Men the young X-Men that we've seen, you know, the new, the new generation, which is the original X-Men have been actually operating in public for like a year or two years. And the, and the, and the premise in the plot is that they've been pushed beyond their limits by Xavier to a point where they're doing high profile stuff with in, in high state, in high stakes environments that they're not really, you know, effectively prepared for and that something's going to go wrong. So the the idea that the phoenix however they're going to bring in the phoenix force and all that stuff the idea is that they've overreached and he's pushed them too far and they're going to get burned from that and so to speak so that's an interesting narrative choice i think that would be well, i'm really surprised that jennifer lawrence signed on for it because like after apocalypse she said never again yeah 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 and and uh i mean getting lawrence fassbender chastain and I mean, it's pretty impressive. 
yeah. had no idea. Yeah. So, so my, so uh, leading from that, my, my hypotheticals for future uh, Marvel films that I'd like to see. So the first should be a no brainer for me. It's Moon Knight. I mean, we've cast it on this podcast. I've oh my gosh! Don't even, don't even get me started about that. Oh yeah, my gosh! I've been, I've been obsessing about Moon Knight since I was a kid. I would love, love, love to see Moon Knight, but I want a Moon Knight that is done the way Daredevil season one was. I want a street level, yeah, crazy, intense, very violent, very urgent Moon Knight, and I want him to be fully uh, talking to and mentored by a glowing bird skull god and he's uh -huh. crazy like i want it to be like all in super I want cool. it to be like, I, 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 right i want it to be like happy but meaningful yeah. yeah but but yeah but serious yeah right happy fx happy but serious okay and so that's yeah. one and then the second one i would like to see is an x23 film yeah but i want to see it pushed forward a little bit i don't care whether it's the same actress in 10 years or whether it's a different actress but I want to see X twenty three as an eight teenager. I actually want to see the same actors. Yeah, no, I no, I I want that too. But I'm saying another thing I would like to see is X twenty three as a young adult. I want to see that version of that character right. um, badly. Uh, also, so so I'm sorry. Can I interject one thing yeah, yeah. here? How can you have a Dark Phoenix saga without Wolverine? Yeah, yeah, it's a tough nut because the the love. And the, I, I, the love triangle is pretty significant. Right, and I don't see anybody on Cyclops. Well, what do you mean? Who's Cyclops in this? It's the same guy as before, the young guy. No. Yeah, he's in there. Same guy. Not, not, Matt, okay. not Marsters, but the, the, or Marston, whatever his name is, but the, the young guy from First Class. Ty Sheridan? Yeah, not First Class, from the, the next, from a... Yeah, the Ty Sheridan, yeah. Yeah. But how can you have right. Dark Phoenix without Wolverine? Well, but at the same, but by the same token, though, the whole Dark Phoenix thing is—I really struggle. I mean, as a comic reader, that was a that was a galactic story, right? She was yes. evolved way past Earth. It was a galactic problem, and had all well, the no, it, stuff. It was a galactic problem because she was a threat to the galaxy, right? right? right. That they detected her. Although I am one of the few people uh, around that will still uh, support in the otherwise atrocious X3 that uh, Dark Phoenix was so powerful that she wiped out Professor X and Cyclops immediately. I thought that was great. Yes, but <laughs> for different reasons. And Professor X came back, yeah, by the but way. The, but the fact that she wiped out Cyclops was just as an afterthought was hilarious. But anyway, okay. No, no, no. I'll be more positive than that. She was elevating him to the plane of her current existence. But left his, but left his eye goggles to float around at a lake or whatever. Well, you didn't need them anymore. You know, it was, it's, it's this inconvenient form of physical manifestation. That was one of those, that was one, that movie was one of those times when, I, I don't know, somehow I can, I can accept all of the physics of John Wick and the, the, you know, the time, the time and reality bending of Interstellar and all of this stuff, but then when McKellen pulls the bridge off its moors and throws the Golden Gate Bridge, oh, don't even get me started on that. And oh, I can't even handle yeah. it from a physics standpoint. You know, like engineering yeah. part of my brain goes, no, 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 that's not how that works. You can't that detach that. the cables. <laughs> yes, then beyond Apocalypse, that was the worst X Men movie ever. 
but, so, I, but I am but I am happy that, that they have John Byrne and Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum as the part of the story team. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, right? Claremont that's actually did an interview fairly recently for a documentary that's being done on his on his career that I posted to robot-kraken.com, which is an entertainment website that you might enjoy. Anyway, so he said... I, I may have heard of that. <laughs> he said that the future... By the way, like when you're doing all your international travel, all you really have to do is go to robot-kraken.com and you'll be up to date on all the latest shit. And arrested in every domain that I go to. No, no. But anyway. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> it hasn't been blocked here in Indonesia. It's fine. So, but Olivia Munn, Olivia Munn is going to show up as Psylocke, which is... Okay, that's oh. all I care about. What were we talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's a Olivia thing. Munn. The thing I like. Uh, that's all I, yeah. All right. So, okay. Listen, I was talking about before the thing, before the other thing, I was talking about my choices for Marvel movies that you haven't seen yet. Wait, what thing? What thing? Semi. So, young adult, uh, young adult X twenty three, Moon Knight. Um, yes. The other thing is, there's been a, 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 a. Are we still being recorded? Yeah. So for a two, <laughs> for a couple of years. There's been a uh, comic series that's been a solo Hawkeye book, okay? And so it's been it's been Hawkeye and 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 then there's a, a young disaffected vet. What disaffected vet? Mm, sort of. And then and then there's well, it's like he cashed out and he 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 moves into this sort of rough neighborhood and he buys the building that he's in that has all these people renting and you know whatever. And then the the Russian mob show up and they don't like that he did that. And so he's always dealing with them, but it's like, he has the, and so now we have the origin story for John Wick. Yeah. Right. So he's like trying not to, he's like, he's not, he's stepped away from the Avengers side of him and he's just trying to barbecue on the roof. And these guys, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There's barbecuing on the roof <laughs> with green lantern. And the, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and so the, it's a very, um, you know, it's down in that street level, storytelling it's it's great art and and the whole thing that what i really like about it is there's another character that marvel introduced about i don't know five years earlier uh named kate bishop who also goes by the name hawkeye and so in this comic you know he's interacted with her he's acknowledged that she's operating under the name hawkeye he's a hawkeye and there's that whole thing about the younger versus the older and being replaced and it's a girl versus the older guy and all this other stuff but it's done in a very, very street level, almost like inherent vice kind of vibe. It's got this really interesting street level thing going on. And uh, I think it would be an amazing Shane Black style Marvel film if they did that. So Hawkeye solo, it contains two Hawkeyes in it. Um, and the senior Hawkeye is actually the kind of the over the hill guy. Um, and then the last film I would say for Marvel that I would love to see, and this goes from their, um, one of their spinoff universes from the eighties. This is a project that directly influenced me to the degree that it, it, you know, it pervades everything that I do now in my stories, in my creator own stuff. But there was a story called strike First Moratori, And it was a spinoff comic in the eighties about a future earth that's being invaded by aliens and they've engineered post like super soldier type post humans. They've given a bunch of powers to go off and fight the aliens. And the, the, the singular conceit behind the story is that they have a, like a one year lifespan. So once they get their powers, 
they're given a costume and they're thrown out there and they fight for a year and then they explode or they die. And so the idea that they all know that they're absolutely, no matter what, going to die within a year brought a level of pathos and a level of urgency to it in, a, in like 1985 or whatever it was at a time when I just had not read anything like that in comics. This was around the same time that DC did that bullshit where they're like, call 1-800-something-something-something if you want Robin to live, you know? And meanwhile, over at Marvel, you had a whole series of, you know, superhero type characters who were um, encouraging a death sentence in order to fight for the world before they died. And you, you fell in love with these characters and then they died in front of you in the book. So I think that would be very interesting to see on film as well. Agreed. Did you ever read that? Did you see it? Nope. Okay. All those concepts that you just heard, I created them. They're in my own creator-owned stuff. Don't worry about it. When you read it, it'll be under under my third rail design lab stuff, and you'll be like, Tom, <laughs> this is amazing. Where did you come up with these ideas? I agree. Super, superheroes that are mortal and are doomed. This sounds great. It sounds like Logan's run, but the planned obsolescence on being yeah. a hero. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. With youngins, the youngins. Which would kind of translate to the New Mutants being a horror film. How is it that Logan's Run hasn't been re, like rebooted with like uh, child stars or whatever? Because everybody already hates old people. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. Hmm. Daddy ever tell you how Uncle Mac come to his reward? Gunned down on his own porch over in Hudspeth County. Seven or eight of them come up there. Oh, wanting this, wanting that. Uncle Mac went back in the house to get the shotgun. Well, there's a head of him. Shot him in his doorway. Well, on that note, <laughs> from one old person to another. All right, I'm Audi 5000. I'm going to go, uh, go venture out into the roundabout. Okay, good luck with the goat farmers. Have All fun. Right. <laughs> good farmers. Bye-bye. Bye.